right. This is Commission President Sam Cho convening the regular meeting of September 26, 2023. The time is 1202 p.m. We're meeting in person today at Seattle Tacoma International Airport Conference Center. Clerk Hart, please call the roll for all commissioners in attendance. Thank you, Mr. Commission President. Beginning with Commissioner Calkins. Here. Thank you, Commissioner Cho. Present. Thank you, Commissioner Fellerman. Present. Thank you, Commissioner Hasegawa. Present. Thank you, and Commissioner Mohammed. Present. Excellent. A few housekeeping items before we begin. For everyone in the meeting room, please turn your cell phones to silent. For anyone participating on Microsoft Teams, please mute your speakers when not actively speaking or presenting. Please keep your cameras off unless you're a member of the uh, commission or executive director participating virtually, or if you are a member of staff in a presentation or actively addressing the commission. Members of the public uh, addressing the commission during public comment may turn on their cameras when their name is called to speak and will turn them back off at the conclusion of their remarks. For anyone on the dais here today, please turn off the speakers on any computers and silence your devices. Uh, please also remember to address your request to be recognized to speak through the chair uh, and to wait to speak until you have been recognized. You'll turn your microphones on and off as needed. All the items noted here will ensure a smoother meeting, so I thank you in advance. All votes today will be taken by the roll call method so that it's clear for anyone participating virtually who, who and how the votes are cast. Commissioners will say aye or nay when their name is called. We are meeting on the ancestral lands and waters of the Coast Salish people with whom we share a commitment to steward these natural resources for future generations. This meeting is being digitally recorded and may be viewed or heard at any time on the port's website and may be rebroadcast by King County Television. Please stand now and join me for the Pledge of Allegiance. Thank you. All right, moving on in the agenda. The first item for today is approval of the agenda. As a reminder, if a commissioner wishes to comment for or against an item on the consent agenda, you do not need to pull it from the consent agenda. Rather, you may offer supporting or opposing comments later in the meeting once we get to the consent agenda. Please wait until the motion to approve the consent agenda is on the floor for these comments, if any. However, it is appropriate at this time if a commissioner wants to ask questions of staff or wishes to have a dialogue on a consent agenda item to request the item to be pulled for separate discussion. Are there any items to be pulled from the consent agenda or any motions to rearrange the orders of the day? All right, seeing none, commissioners, the question is now on approval of the agenda. Is there a motion to approve the agenda as presented? So moved. Seconded. Excellent. The motion has been made and seconded. Is there any objection to the approval of the agenda as presented? Hearing none, the agenda is approved. Moving on, uh, we have no special order scheduled for today, so we're going to skip on to our next agenda item, which is the Executive Director's Report. Executive Director Metric, you have the floor. Good afternoon, Commissioners. Let me begin by thanking those of you that were able to join us earlier this morning for the ribbon-cutting ceremony for the Westside Fire Station. Uh, while the project completed earlier this year, it was, it was great to tour the facility and to celebrate with our firefighters on a project that was a long time in coming. Um, this building ensures it will meet our regulatory obligations for airfield fire response and also provides high-quality facilities that our firefighters deserve, even if they're uh, labeled interim, but even though they're interim, we want them to be the best that they can be. 
Uh, we greatly appreciate the leadership and patience of Chief Krause and his leadership team and Local 1257 uh, for, uh, for their participation in the project and, again, their patience in, in as we uh, were delivering this facility. And a special shout-out and thank you to the project team uh, for successfully completing the construction and to the port staff who organized today's uh, event. I'd also like to begin with my remarks with a few religious and cultural acknowledgments. First, a belated Happy New Year to our Jewish, Jewish colleagues and community members. Yesterday marked the end of the Jewish High Holidays with Yom Kippur and the, the Jewish Day of Atonement. I hope that everyone who observed the day had a meaningful fast. I also want to note that September 15th to October 15th is National Latino Heritage Month. This month provides an opportunity to pay tribute to the generations of Latinx and Hispanic, uh, Hispanic Americans that are pro positively influenced and enriched our nation. It reminds us that, uh, that our American identity is a fabric of diverse traditions and stories woven together. Our culture has been and continues to be enriched by creativity, brilliance, and values of the community. Our Port Employee Resource Group, Latinos Unidos, is planning several community enrichment and educational events during the month, including an EDI Lunch and Learn on October, October 11th, coming up. With the end of summer comes a change in operations here at the port. This upcoming weekend will be our final Saturday and Sunday with three cruise ships in port. Through this past weekend, we hosted 260 of the 290 planned cruise calls for 2023. This week, we've, we, we have three more of our home ported ships here for their final port call of the season before they leave for their winter deployments. We're still working on finalizing t passenger totals numbers for the season as it reaches its conclusion next month, but most of the vessels are sailing near or at capacity, which will be uh, a record for us if that's the case. Commissioners, while the port continues to make progress on our budget process, I wish I could say the same at the federal level. Uh, Congress has until the end of the week to come up with a plan to fund the federal government past September 30th. As we know, as, as we know, following the news, unfortunately, the differences between the House and the Senate on the subject are significant and may result in a federal government shutdown. As you remember from the last shutdown in 2018, most of the federal staff who operate our Aviation and Maritime Gateways, the FAA, TSA, and CBP, are deemed essential and will continue to work. However, that they will be without pay until the shutdown is over. Uh, however, other federal functions such as permitting, ongoing environmental reviews, and grant making will suspend. As such, we will continue to monitor the situation in Washington, D.C. and keep you advised of any developments should they happen. Uh, in addition, if there is a shutdown, we're prepared to support the federal staff at our facilities as they weather the situation, as we have done in the past in the previous shutdowns, to look for opportunities. And I think one of the things is this is, um, if the government is shut down, we'll continue to monitor it to see how long it happens because different things will happen as the longer if the shutdown does that. And we'll make sure the commissioners are advised of those uh, impacts as it goes forward if there is a longer shutdown. We hope that's not the case. We hope um, that the continuity of, of the funding continues. Moving to today's commission meeting, I'd like to highlight a few items. On our briefing agenda today, we'll provide a first look at our proposed central services budget. As I mentioned before, my budget guidance to the staff was to have a fiscally responsible approach that is aligned with our values, priorities, and the century agenda. Economic uncertainty and inflationary cost drivers mean that we'll ha we have 
take an extremely strategic look at any proposed new investments for next year. And you'll see that in the budget. I'll have more to share about our financial outlook during the presentation. The second item on our uh, presentation agenda is the Port of Seattle Police Department annual report. This presentation will cover trends for our police department, recruitment and retention strategies, as well as touch on progress on implementing findings from the pre policing assessment. I look forward to your uh, questions and discussion on this important topic. Commissioners, this concludes my remarks. Great. Thank you so much, Executive Director. We're now going to move on to committee reports. Erica Chung, Commission Strategic Advisor, will provide the report. Erica. Hello. Good afternoon, President Cho, Commissioners, and Executive Director Metric. I have three committee reports for you today. The Aviation Committee was convened by Commissioners Kalkin and Mohammed on September 19, where they discussed airport accessibility and the FAA reauthorization. Staff also provided updates on aviation budget priorities, ground transportation, dispute resolution, and the South 160th lot. Commissioners Hasegawa and Mohammed convened the first meeting of the Airport Workforce Conditions Ad Hoc Committee on September 19, where they were briefed on SCA child care survey findings and discussed next steps. As the first meeting, commissioners also discussed the meeting cadence and next meeting agenda. Moving forward, the Ad Hoc Committee will meet every other month with the next meeting in November and a briefing by OEDI regarding third-party oversight of SCA vendors. Commissioners Mohammed and Cho convened the Small Business Ad Hoc Committee on Tuesday, September 19th and heard an update on the progress of several port-funded business accelerators. Representatives from Business Impact Northwest, Maritime Blue, and Greater Seattle Partners gave updates on the Port Gen Maritime Blue Innovation Accelerator and Greater Seattle Export Accelerator programs, respectively. While most of these programs are drawing a good amount of participation, participant interest, commissioners heard a need to drive more applicants to the export accelerator in any future cohort. Commissioners asked questions about follow-up with participants at the conclusion of the accelerator programs and emphasized the need to track and measure part participant success over the long term versus a few months or, or a year. This concludes my report. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you, Erica. Any questions for staff or Steve for, uh, from commissioners? No, okay, chugging along. Uh, we will now move on to the public comment portion of our agenda. Um, the, the commission welcomes public comment as an important part of the public process. Comments are received and considered by the commission its delibera deliberations, excuse me. Um, before uh, I start, I wanna ask Clerk Hart, do we have any speakers signed up for today? Um, we do not. Okay. Um, I, like I think it's appropriate to still call from the room. Yep. Do you want to still go through the public comment rules then? No, um, well, why don't I first ask, is there anyone in the room or online that may not have signed up who wishes to speak? All right, seeing none, I don't think we need to go through the rules. So that concludes public comment for today. Um, do we have any written comments? We have not received any written comments oh, wow. for today's meeting. Nice, I think we're doing a good job. <laughs> All right, hearing no further public testimony, yeah, no news is good news. We'll move to the consent agenda. Items on the consent agenda are considered routine and will be adopted by one motion. Items removed from the consent agenda will be considered separately immediately after the adoption of the remaining consent agenda items. At this time, the chair will entertain a motion to approve consent agenda items covering 8A, 8B, 8C, and 8D. So moved. Excellent. 
All right, motion has been made and seconded. Commissioners, please say aye or nay when your name is called for approval of the consent agenda. For approval of the consent agenda, beginning with Commissioner Calkins. Aye. Thank you, Commissioner Fellman. Aye. Thank you, Commissioner Hasegawa. Aye. Thank you, Commissioner Mohammed. Aye. Thank you, and Commissioner Cho. Aye. Thank you. Five ayes, zero nays for this item. Excellent. Moving on, uh, and the motion passes, excuse me. Um, getting a little eager now. <laughs> Moving on in the agenda, we have two new business items today. Clerk Hart, please read the item into the record. Executive Director Metric will then introduce the item. Thank you. This is agenda item 10A, authorization for the Executive Director to authorize an additional $213,900,000 and increase the total project budget to $399 million to execute the maximum allowable construction cost contract amendment, any related project change orders, amendments, work authorizations, purchases, contracts, and to take other necessary actions necessary to support and deliver the C concourse expansion project within the approved budget. Commissioners, the C concourse expansion program is one of our most exciting and transformational projects at SEA. Once complete, this expansion will address shortfalls in airport dining and retail capacity, office space, and premium lounge space, as well as other public amenities to elevate the customer, customer experience and upgrade SEA. It will also be one of our most environmentally friendly facilities with a significant portion of its energy coming from renewable and low carbon sources. In fact, it will be the, the first SEA facility that includes rooftop solar panels. The goal is to complete this project by 2026, which is a deadline shared by many SEA capital programs. You'll see that as we go forward through uh, in the over the coming years. That's in order to be ready for the 2026 World Cup Games here in Seattle. Uh, to that end, today's action is a significant milestone in what we now have, in that we now have a maximum allowable construction cost for the project. So the presenters uh, this afternoon are Rick Duncan. Director of Aviation Business Properties and Janet Scheer, Capital Program Leader. So, Rick, I'm going to turn it over to you. All right. Uh, thank you, Executive Director. Uh, Rick Duncan, Director of Aviation Properties. And uh, you have seen this before, but we have a lot more uh, eye candy to show you, and the evolution of it has been great. Um, it is pretty exciting, the maximal allowable construction cost that we're going to set that, and we uh, reached under the $400 million mark, which um, is below budget, so I think we're... Eh the low side of the target budget, which I think is a, a good su success. So I will uh, hand it over. Uh, you know what, that might be my fault. Try it now. That was I think good. we're good. All right, good afternoon, commissioners and executive director metric. My name is Janet Shear, and I'm the ports program leader for the Sea Concourse Expansion Program. It's only been a few months since we briefed you on um, project status, but as promised, we're back today. And I've brought along several members of our port design and construction team um, to request authorization for our final program budget and um, to grant us authorization to contract for a maximum allowable construction cost agreement with Turner Construction. Next slide. This project is part of the upgrade SEA program here at the airport. And our, our um, project team has been coordinating with a whole host of stakeholders, ext including external relations, um, to make sure that we're communicating proactively with the public about Sea Concourse expansion. In fact, our external relations um, team is kicking a lot of that communications off this very week. 
And as part of today's presentation, we're going to preview the architectural animation um, that our Miller Hall Woods Bagot team created as part of that effort. Next slide. A quick reminder here that the C Concourse Expansion Project kind of has dual purposes. We're going to increase airport revenue and economic opportunities by addressing some of our deficiencies in airport dining and retail offerings, um, office space, and by adding lounge capacity. We're also going to improve customer service um, by adding a whole host of passenger amenities, including restrooms, an interfaith prayer meditation room, a nursing room, a pet relief area, and a public lookout. Um, and we're also going to just about double the size of the C3 hold room, which is directly adjacent to the CCE program. Next slide. Um, I think you've seen this before. This just illustrates the location and the scale of the new facility with CCE shown there um, in the middle with the dark sloped roof. Those are our PV panels on the roof. Um, and it's shown right there at the juncture between Concourse C and Concourse D. Next slide. Okay, um, as mentioned earlier, we're gonna play an animation video of the new CCE. I'm going to let it play. I'll add a few comments as we go. Go ahead. Whoever's doing it. There we go. So showing some of our exterior spaces. This shows the underside of those PV panels. And as we go in here, we're really showing a lot of the wood that is used on the interior, as well as some of the light, bright interior spaces um, lots of room for passengers to um, spread out and take a load off for a little while. Getting your own planes too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this is from the point of view of a passenger that's coming in through our new, new main um, thoroughfare. We're going to shift how you enter Concourse C so that it runs through our new space. So lots of seating areas. Here's some grandstand seating with the tree at sea. You can see we've got this high bay atrium space that really opens things up. There is catchy music here, but we're not including that today. Listen to it online. Um, so this shows a lot of the upstairs ADR spaces and some of the seating for those, how it all ties together with um, our wood. As this kind of pans around, you're gonna, it's going to take us up to the third floor of the facility. It's gonna just kind of pause here to note that this is where our interfaith prayer meditation room and the sensory room are. And then it's gonna take us out to the public lookout. You can see the one for the lounge directly above. And as this kind of pans away, you see that our electrochromic glazing is shifting and opening up because the sun's going down. Hmm. There it is. <laughs> Good job, Woods Beggett and Miller Hall. All right, let's keep moving. Okay, so one of our um, CCE's major sustainability initiatives, the rooftop PV panels, you could see it, it was on display in the animation, but I wanted to take a few minutes to note 
um, a few of the other things that are included in this, which helps us hopefully exceed our goal of LEED Silver certification. So um, we are providing all electric and fossil fuel free heating, cooling. So there is um, no fossil fuel um, being used in the building. We're enhancing our air quality and we're going to use healthy materials that have a, re um, a reduced embodied carbon value. And we also have lots of um, biophilic design elements. A lot of those were actually on display in the animation. You could see the use of natural materials and how lots of um, glazing and the adjustable electro electrochromic um, film that we're using on there allows you to really connect with nature. Um, one thing, I've got a slider here on the bottom. We're currently tracking with um, 65 lead points, which actually push us up into the gold range. Ooh. So I'm cautiously optimistic that as long as we're able to move forward with everything that we're planning um, on our lead scorecard right now, we may reach um, lead gold on this project. So I'm gonna be coming back and we're gonna brief you obviously periodically and so we'll make sure to let you know how that's going along the way. Next slide. Okay, here's a quick snapshot of our project schedule. So the little diamond there in red is today, where we will hopefully receive authorization for um, construction of the main building. You can see that um, thanks to your previous authorizations, we've been able to get a lot of work done on this project already. Design is complete, and you can see that um, those EWP stands for Early Work Package, which is all the things that have already been authorized, and we've been able to work on that um, in the field. So um, fast forward, starting next year, we'll get into construction of the main building. We'll start erecting a tower crane and erecting steel next year. And um, we're gonna be able to establish a contractual schedule as part of this MAC agreement that we'll execute with Turner, which sets that substantial completion date. So right now, um, that substantial completion date is in early May. And you'll see there that there is a soccer ball icon, mm -hmm. which has been added to the schedule. Um, and like Mr. Um, Metric referenced, um, the goal is to complete this project as much as we possibly can before the World Cup game. You'll notice there isn't a lot of space between our substantial completion date and the little soccer ball icon. So we are actively working with um, a lot of the folks that are sitting right behind me are working to find a way to incrementally just creep that back as much as we can to provide more room because it's not only us that needs to complete on time. We're really trying to um, make sure that all of our tenants that are gonna be opening up here for ADR they'll have enough time to complete as well. Next slide. Okay, I wanted to just brief you guys at a really high level about WMBE participation um, by Turner so far. Um, they have a goal of 12%, and as you can see here, um, these are just kind of rough percentages, but they've exceeded that goal um, substantially. We're sitting at around a little over 19% right now and the great news here is that Turner isn't satisfied with exceeding the goal where they are today. They're continuing to um, try to bring more MWBE contractors onto their team as part of this project. And just last week, um, they participated in a CCE port gen 
here, maybe mm. even in this room, about a week ago. Um, so they're, they're not taking their foot off the gas, still trying to make that number even higher if possible. Next slide. Okay, here we'll talk about the numbers. So um, we talked about this um, in my last briefing too in July. The MI approved budget for um, CCE was $340 million. What you're seeing here are transfers and trends that have adjusted the project since that MIA approved budget was set um, in early 2021. So it includes um, a couple of small um, discretionary scope changes that have been approved. Um, one to add some conduit for a future restroom project and um, one to add some access control that's going to provide more um, equitable access to our ADR tenants that have storage areas in the bottom level of the building. Um, it also includes, um, you'll see here line item for our non-discretionary scope changes. That's for things like our sustainability initiatives and for um, some changes we had to make to the way we do um, emergency power in the building. And then um, the bottom two lines there for escalation, that's infl um, inflation and some design development as we went from early phases of design to our final design, um, as well as establishment of a risk contingency um, that's going to help carry us forward to the end of the program. Those two bottom numbers have actually come down by about $6 million since we were here in July. So right now um, we're sitting at our final budget of $399 million, which is just slightly below that range that we thought we'd be at when we came um, to talk to you in July. All right, next slide. So um, to wrap things up, I just want to recap today's request for you. Um, to date, we have had $185,100,000 previously authorized for the Seacon Course Expansion Program. Today's request is for $213,900,000, which brings us to our final budget of $399 million. This is um, going to authorize that unfunded program balance and allow us to move forward and execute a MAC agreement with Turner Construction. The, the numbers there um, it was sitting at $243,406,988. Um, and we'll be able to um, move forward having that full project funding. And hopefully, we'll be coming back to you for um, just future briefings until the project is done in 2026. That is my whole presentation. Excellent. Happy to answer any questions. Thank you so much for the presentation. Very exciting. Uh, and I will open it up for questions from commissioners. I can ask the first one. Okay. Um, it looks like there was some cost escalation since the MII vote. Does that require an, a secondary MII vote, or can we get through without that? Um, we, uh, the airport has elected to use some of the management reserve funds that are in our airline agreement to make up the gap between the MII approved amount and the total program, so we don't have to go back. That was what, $50 million-ish? Around. $50 million gap? Okay, so yeah. it won't require, okay, because I have some trauma over projects just getting delayed because of that, so glad we found a way around it. 
Yeah, Commissioner Mohammed. The presentation in that video was really exciting. I saw Kathy back there clapping for it. Oh, good. I, I imagine she helped design it, maybe. <laughs> she had some great feedback, so yeah. That's good. That's, it was beautiful. I have a quick question around the um, WIMBY participation. You mentioned that Turner is working hard to increase those numbers. Yeah. Can you share what um, we're doing to help facilitate that? Are there any efforts from our end to help them meet those goals? Yeah, so I think um, the Ports Diversity and Contracting Group has partnered with Turner when they do things like these Port Gen um, events here at the airport. And I know that um, on every contract I have on this project, and I'm sure Turner is the same, you know, we have a monthly check-in with our, um, you know, our contract compliance folks. And it's one of the things that we talk about in those meetings, you know, how are things going? Um, are you still on track to meet your goals? So yeah, they've been a good partner for us. Okay. And then my, I have one more question. Um, just regard, if you could just maybe share just the risk management. I know you talked about um, you have the little ball pointing to the soccer, yes. uh, the games that we're predicting, and hopefully you guys will be able to um, complete the project before th those deadlines. But we know there's an increase of customers and passengers throughout our airport. Maybe you guys can shortly speak to for the uh, purpose of the public to share what our communication plans will be in just dealing with this, these construction projects. Yeah, so there's, um, there's several things they're gonna see. The main thing they're gonna see is you know, the existing C1 building, we're gonna have to put some barricades up in front of it. So we're doing a lot of work with um, external relations, um, our activation folks, or at lots of folks are you know, making sure that for one, when um, you know, we put up these barricade walls, we're gonna make sure that they're communicating with the public, telling them not only what's going on, but um, hey, um, your next restroom is right down here. You know, we're not blocking any off, but you know, just take an opportunity to make sure that there's no concern about um, you know, what's going on behind the curtain. And our, um, we've also had, we, ha we do have regular meetings with external relations. And one thing that I think has been great is that we've been able to bring in um, the, our external relations counterparts on um, Miller Hole's design team and Woods Baggett's design team and Turner Construction. All those folks have been coming together to meet periodically. So there's a really good free flow of information between them so that um, all these different um, kind of, you know, all the different concerns are brought together and we're really open to understanding that, hey, if this is going to be something that's even perceived as something that's impacting the public, let's get it out there and let's talk about it. So it's been really good. I know they're formalizing a communications plan. Mm -hmm. um, our external relations folks are right now, now that we're kind of at the point where we know what that schedule is too. Thank you. Thank you all for your hard work. I want to follow up on that because I think that uh, we've been doing a lot of, you know, when you look at the baggage claim area in the bottom floor, we put up a lot of stuff that makes it less of an eyesore. I think with this project in particular, it'd be really nice to actually not just say, hey, we're under construction, sorry, but to actually show what we're constructing. Yeah. Right? So to have the, the, the renderings and or even the video you just plugged, you just played on loop so people mm -hmm. understand exactly what we're working on. Um, I think most people understand that the airport is under construction. When I go out there and talk to people, they're like, oh yeah, like I get it. But uh, I think it's a lot more 
easier to of a pill to swallow if they're like, ah, okay, that's what we're working That is towards. exactly so. what we're planning on doing, which is one of the reasons that even though these barricades are not going to probably go up until sometime in January, yeah. there's already been, you know, job site walks with the external relations. We're meeting with our, you know, the fire department and the building department too to make sure that we're meeting all of the code requirements for this. Um, and it's a really long, um, <laughs> it's really long so there's a lot of room for information on it. So they are thinking about do we want to have a video screen on here? Um, how many renderings do we want to put on there? You know, they're, they're going through and really kind of sectioning out on that barricade wall what they use all the real estate for. So Great. a lot of work that's already been done on it. Yeah, and a lot of uh, proactive work too, working with Alaska Airlines too. Because yeah, yes. well, they're going to be their passengers, so giving yep. them the heads up. And, you know, the poor Alaska passenger that's going to be dealing with the Gateway project and then this project. Um, so there's a, no, not just pardon our dust messaging, but being more proactive about it as well. All right, hearing no, do you have a question? Okay, Commissioner Hazagawa. Well, this is a really exciting presentation. It's a project that I'm excited about, not just the opportunity to be able to update our facilities, to modernize, make it more efficient, but also promote a better customer experience. Um, I really appreciate the acknowledgement for due diligence, making every effort to get it uh, completed, not just under budget, but in, in time for the World Cup. Um, I'm wondering, can you just remind us what sort of passengers are traveling through Concourse C? Well, they're mostly um, domestic passengers, mm -hmm. I would say. They might be connecting from an international flight and then making their way from the IAF out that way. So it, it's mostly domestic and, you know, we think there'll probably be a lot of departing passengers that are um, going to be, you know, coming from our checkpoints flowing through and sitting in here but um, it's certainly inviting enough I think and we'll probably even bring passengers in that are arriving and maybe have some time in between a another flight or just want to take a load off before they you know make their way home. So it's not just folks from the international community it's folks who are traveling through our facility from other parts of the country absolutely going on um to their to their next destination yep. um excellent and then can you talk just a little bit about um the facility speaking of a positive customer experience what's the primary purpose of a sensory room so the sensory room um, will allow anyone who just needs a moment to get away from the hustle and bustle um, that is swirling around them in an airport. So, you know, they may be someone who is autistic. They may need someone who just needs to take a break in a quiet space. So the sensory room is set up so that um, you can go in there, we've got it nicely soundproofed with appropriate finishes and just kind of a very relaxing design that um, Miller Hall has partnered really closely with our um, architectural um, folks in F&I because we know what works here at the airport for sensory rooms. So there's been a really robust discussion about making sure that the design of that room will accommodate just anybody that needs to take a break before they get on their flight or even after they've been on a flight for a little while. And it features low lighting and a comfy place to sit. Does it Absolutely. have any other amenities? Yeah, I, got I think um, 
for the most part, we're trying to bring some, we're going to try to bring some art into that room. We haven't finalized exactly what that looks like yet. Okay. But um, I'm wondering more along the lines of things that make it um, a place for folks who are traveling as a family, if they have, uh, you know, a place where women can breastfeed, warm bottles, their amenities that other airports do offer. Yeah. So our, um, we do have um, a, like a nursing room that's close to the sensor room, but okay. it's not part of it. So those, that's a separate space Great. from it. So there's some synergy there okay. um, for sure. But I think, you know, families would want to use that sensory room for kind of the same reason that anybody else would. If you just need to get away and you need a quiet space and everybody is wanting to kind of, you know, dial things down a little bit, that'd be a place to go. In the nursing room, we're not talking about one of those stand-up portable pods with the no. really offensive lighting. Can you no. tell us a little bit about... <laughs> no, absolutely not. Okay. Um, it's, it is a space with a sink and a comfortable place to sit and either, you know, pump or um, breastfeed or just give a bottle to a child. Um, we've made sure that, you know, it can accommodate um, a family with more than one child also because, you know, we don't want to always make the assumption that it's just a parent and one child that's in there. Oftentimes, you know, one parent could be traveling with multiple kids at once and we want to make sure that there's a space where there's room for everyone to um, relax for a moment while um, the parents taking care of whatever that kid needs right Tra I mean traveling with kids informs everything about how the customer themselves is planning their trip what they're gonna bring when they're gonna travel where they're going to go right. so um, in facilitating I think you know a positive customer experience um, I, it's just an important um, thing for us to understand how we're, we're accommodating 100%. that. And does it have running water, like a yes. plug-in? Okay, yes, it does. very good. modeled after the north set. All right. Oh. I don't know, actually. Yeah, I think so. Well, we, it's a standalone room. It's, it's, you know, it's not a pod. It's a standalone yeah. space. Mm -hmm. yep. Yep. Yeah, yep. yeah. That's Commissioner Fellman. Hi, thanks for the presentation. I'm delighted to see staff embracing the goals of the sustainability sustainability evaluation framework and to strive to reach gold certification is great. My question is whether the WIMBY goals make any contribution towards the LEED certification or they, do they even consider that? Um, I would say that they, they do in that um, Apollo Mechanical is our um, mechanical contractor. So a lot of the work that they're doing as far as the heat pumps um, is going to be work that they're doing, and they are one of our um, WIMPY contractors. They're actually the one with our um, highest percentage of participation right now. But as far as LEED is concerned, do they it, care about I, I think that? the question is, does LEED take into account WIMPY participation in their certification? You know, I don't think they do, but they should. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting consideration we can yeah. bring up. Yeah, we could research that for you. I'm not, off the top of my head, I, I think we you. should write them about it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. If there are no further questions, we'll go ahead and move on to a vote. Commissioner, I mean, Commissioner Clerk Hart, please call the roll. Do we have a motion and so second moved. for this item? Oh, we didn't do that, huh? Second. <laughs> All right. The motion was made and seconded. See, I'm getting eager here. For the vote on item 10A, beginning with Commissioner Calkins. Aye. 
Thank you. Commissioner Fellerman. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Hasegawa. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Mohammed. Aye. Thank you. And Commissioner Cho. Uh, just kidding. Aye. Thank you. Five ayes, zero nays for this item. All right. The motion passes. Thank you so much. Thank you. Very Thank excited you. for this. Very excited. All right. Clerk Hart, please read the next item into the record. Executive Director Metric will then introduce the item. Thank you. This is agenda item 10B, order number 2023-11, an order to adopt the Port of Seattle Commission's Board of Ethics findings and conclusions regarding Board of Ethics complaint number 2022-01, and to adopt a corrective course of action. Commissioners, the next item is order number order <clears throat> order number 2023 TAC. One one to adopt Port of Seattle Commissioner's Board of Ethics findings and conclusions reference Board of Ethics complaint 2022-01 and to adopt a corrective course of action. I'll now turn it over to Commission President Cho to introduce the order. Thank you, Executive Director Metric. Uh, before we begin on this item, there are two of our colleagues who would like to recuse themselves. Um, I'll first start with Commissioner Hazagawa. Uh, thank you, President Cho, members of the Commission. I'd like to recuse myself from item 10B to due to a potential conflict of interest or a potential appearance of a conflict of interest. This item addresses a Board of Ethics investigation, and I have a family member who owns a business that provides services to the subject of the investigation. After consulting with the Commission Council and out of an abundance of caution, I've recused myself from the consideration of this matter. I'd like to emphasize, however, that neither I nor my family member have had any involvement with the facts and circumstances at issue in this matter. Consistent with the Commission bylaws, I'll leave the meeting room during consideration of this item and will return when it's complete. Thank you, Commissioner Hazagawa and Commissioner Feldman. Uh, commissioners, uh, item 10B concerns me, so I will recuse myself due to conflict of interest. And consistent with uh, Commission bylaws, I'll leave the room during the discussion of this subject and I will continue participating remotely. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner. Thank you, Commissioners. Um, obviously, you are welcome to rejoin the meeting if you wish once discussion and action is over. As Executive Director Metric said, this item is based on a complaint received by the Port of Seattle Commission Board of Ethics in October of 2022. It alleges potential violations of code of ethics for Port Commissioners uh, by Commissioner Fred Feldman. Following an independent investigation and pursuant to Section 8C of the Commissioner Code, the board in June of 2023 reported its findings and conclusions and recommended corrective actions to the Port Commission. The text of the order is on the Commission website and Clerk Hart has distributed copies to those of us on the dais. I will not read the order verbatim, but in summary, the board concluded that Commissioner Fellman, more likely than not, used his Port Commissioner position in an effort to secure special privileges or exemptions for himself, and that he sought special consideration, treatment, or advantage from others. Both of these actions are in violation of the Commissioner Code. The Board also concluded Commissioner Fellman's actions were not consistent with the Port's Statement of Values and the Port of Seattle Commission bylaws. The Board did not conclude, however, that his actions were taken for financial or electoral benefit. As a result, the Commission admonishes Commissioner Fellman for his violation of the Commissioner Code 
and corresponding failure to abide the, by the port's statement of values and bylaws. The Commission directs Commissioner Fellerman to attend remedial and thorough training provided by the port in, at, media, at minimum, A, conflict of interest, and B, appropriate standards for interaction between elected officials and staff. The Commission also suggests that Commissioner Fellerman uh, apologizes in writing to the complainants. I will now turn things over to my colleagues to make remarks. I'm going to start uh, with Commissioner Mohammed. Mr. Commission President, yeah. before we continue, can I just note that I've just advised the two recusing commissioners not to join until we, um, to rejoin the meeting until we advise them to. Okay, great. I'm going to actually just open it up, uh, open the floor up to anyone who wants to make comments. Um, well, thank you, President Cho. Um, I just want to express my deep gratitude to the Ethics Board for their diligence and thorough investigation. I know a lot of uh, time and effort has went through um, with this process, and so I just I want to thank them for the work that they did. Um, all three of us met with the Board of Ethics and were able to hear directly from them. And so I, I really do appreciate the time and effort that they put into this. And I also just want to thank those who were part of the investigation, who provided interviews and comments. And um, yeah, uh, I agree with the, the findings and um, will cast my vote, vote accordingly today. Thank you for the time. Thank you, Commissioner Mohammed. Commissioner Calkins. Uh, you know, I've spent a lot of time thinking about um, this particular topic and what I might say uh, in response to it. And I think the most important thing is to convey how sorry I am that this kind of behavior happened uh, with our staff, that um, people at the Port of Seattle are, have chosen to work in a public agency and provide public service. And we are deeply committed to creating a workplace where people feel welcomed and appreciated for that service. And I know that each of us up here has made mistakes, uh, all five of us, and uh, that you know, when we decide to run for and, and eventually take the oath to be a commissioner, we take on the responsibility that comes with that authority. And we need to understand how seriously that, Im that, that authority can impact uh, those who work with us. And so I, I'm coming away from this feeling like um, it's an opportunity for all five of us to really review the way we interact with staff and external stakeholders and others and make sure that we really understand uh, that when you carry this title, um, it carries a lot of impact. And so I hope we all learn from this. Um, you know, there's been a lot of conversations with Commissioner Fellman, uh, with my colleagues, about what we can do in the future to make sure that this never happens again. But at the end of the day, I do want the complainants to know and anyone else to know that we are sincerely sorry for what happened. And we are going to try to make sure that, um, that no commissioner um, treats anyone in a way that um, results in, in this kind of process having to be necessary in the first place. So with that, I am going to vote in support. And um, I know that this is also the start of a process for us mm -hmm. uh, to review our bylaws and understand were there things that facilitated this in the first place and make sure that um, 
you know, when we as individuals with weaknesses, um, uh, that where the system can ensure that we we don't make that kind of mistake again. So I think that's it. Thank you, Commissioner Calkins. And, and I'll just conclude by making a few remarks on the matter as well. You know, um, let me just start by saying that, you know, I pride ourselves as an organization, as an institution, uh, uh, for being one of the best public agencies in the region. Um, and one of the reasons I, I truly believe that the Port of Seattle is such an amazing organization is because we, high, we hold ourselves to a high standard. Um, and that high standard really starts with us as commissioners, especially because we are elected by the people of King County. Uh, we are held accountable uh, for our actions uh, and our words and our behavior. Um, and so it starts with us. And um, I'm really sorry that we, uh, you know, fell uh, below that standard. Um, this, this process has not been an easy one, especially for myself as uh, the presiding president of this commission. It's taken up a lot of staff time, a lot of mental and headspace to deal with. Um, and uh, I will say that uh, in the end, uh, you know, it's been a good process because this is mu a muscle that we have not flexed in a long time. Uh, and this process of going through the ethics committee, doing the investigation and formalizing this has been a really good exercise for us as a body, as an office. Um, and I think that at the end of the day, um, uh, we will come out of this better than before. I also just want to take a moment to acknowledge and, uh, and thank the complainants. Um, look, uh, as someone who has worked in many uh, large organizations and, and big bureaucracies, I understand fully and I know my colleagues understand uh, that it is very difficult to speak up uh, when uh, you've been wronged, especially in organizations like these uh, where you have so much bureaucracy and process, uh, the fear of retaliation. Um, and, you know, and I, I have to really commend the complainants for coming forward and um, uh, blowing that whistle uh, on what could not have been an easy thing to do. Um, and this morning I actually had uh, some time with the complainants uh, and I thank them not just for standing up but for making us better as an organization. And I sincerely hope that at the conclusion of their tenure here at the Port of Seattle, one of the things that they could be the most proud of is that they made this organization a better one because of what they did, because of the courage they showed, because they helped, held us to that higher standard. And so I really want to thank them uh, for, for that. Um, as my colleague Ryan uh, Calkins said, this is just the beginning of this conversation. Uh, today we are passing a motion uh, re with regards to uh, our, our colleague, uh, who is the subject of these complaints, but at the end of the day, uh, it, this this is a matter for in the entire commission office uh, in, in terms of how we should be interacting with staff, how we should be behaving and treating staff. Um, and so, as we alluded to uh, in Commissioner Calkins' remarks, the commission is going to be reviewing our bylaws, uh, and this is not because of this, but uh, but uh, we were always intending to review our bylaws as part of kind of our regular uh, order of um, of procedure, uh, but we will definitely be looking at uh, these issues of conduct and ethics and conflicts of interest and whatnot to make sure that uh, whatever happens going forward is uh, addressed, uh, that there are uh, further uh, consequences and or uh, accountability measures for us as commissioners. And so uh, I, I sincerely hope um, that um, those who uh, where you know uh, the complainants feel vindicated by this process, you know. I, let me and let me just uh, say this real quickly: uh, the board of ethics and the investigation that happened was uh, so thorough and so well done. There is no reason for any doubt around 
the way that they conducted their investig investigation and the conclusions of their investigation and the, the recommendations of the ethics board. And so I really want to thank all those who were involved over the last year who did that. Um, and there's, uh, it's, it's the reason why uh, this commission has chosen to adopt uh, the recommendations of the ethics board uh, wholesale as is. So with that, um, if there are no additional uh, commissioner comments. Yes, Commissioner Mohammed. My question is, do we have Commissioner Bellman's apology letter? That, or that, that apology letter is actually to the complainants. And um, I'll, I'm going to introduce, yeah, so if there are no additional commissioner comments on this item, is there a motion and a second to adopt order 2023-11? So moved. Second. Excellent. The motion was made and seconded. Clerk Hart, please call the roll for the vote. Commissioners, please say aye or nay when your name is called. Thank you. For the vote on item 10B, beginning with Commissioner Calkins. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Mohammed. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Chow. Aye. Thank you. Three ayes, zero nays for this item. Great. Um, sorry, hold on. I'm, I believe that... Um, We have a item from Commissioner Fellman response to this, Commissioner Clerk. Um, I don't see that in my script, so. Yeah, we're not there yet. Um, I believe um, Executive Director Metric had a few comments as well. Okay, go ahead, uh, Executive Director Metric, go ahead. Thank you, President Cho. <clears throat> Commissioners, first off, thank you for addressing this important issue. And I wanna echo your remarks um, first and foremost about sharing your sentiments about about the value of our staff uh, to me they are the most important asset that we have here at the port and um, in the importance of respectful professional treatment of the port staff is paramount for all of us and matter of fact respect is the key uh, to interacting with everyone that we have both uh, here on our staff and with the public and we that's one of our core values and one of my highest honors is, is to help lead this workforce and that I'm constantly impressed by their expertise, dedication, integrity, and hard work to further our agreed to century agenda goals, moving us all forward. So I thank you for your ongoing commitment to upholding our values in this regard and look forward to working with you to update the port's policies to reflect that commitment going forward. Uh, I also want to reiterate the commissioner's thanks to the Board of Ethics for their important work and to the complainants for their participation in the process, as Commissioner, uh, President Cho has so eloquently said. Again, my top goal as Executive Director is work to create a work environment that's aligned with our raised values, and those raised values are respect, anti-racism and equity, integrity, stewardship, and excellence. And that is a continuous process, and we work every day to get closer and closer to achieving it, but as uh, Commissioner Calkins was saying, we're always working on doing that. So I thank you again for today's important action uh, and the signal it sends to uh, the entire workforce and uh, uh, to the public as well about, uh, about that. And, uh, and I look forward to working you, with you moving forward on this. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Executive Director Metric. For the record, real quick, I didn't uh, specify that the motion did pass on a 3-0 vote. Commissioner President, if I may? Yeah. Uh, Mr. Commissioner President, members of the commission, I do have a request at this time from Commissioner Fellman to enter a statement into the record. Clerk Hart has copies of that statement and will distribute it to you for review. 
Thank you, Mr. Pritchard. Members of the Commission, please take a moment to review the statement before you. Commission office can please advise, oh, I'm sorry. Um, is there any objection to entering the statement into the meeting record? Hearing none, uh, it's concluded, uh, included in the meeting record. All right, if the commission office uh, can please advise the recused commissioner that they may return to the meeting at this time. And uh, Clerk Hart, if you could please read the next item into the record, Executive Director Mitch will then introduce it. Give me one moment. Thank you, Mr. Commission President. This is item 11A, the 2024 Central Services Preliminary Budget and Portwide Roll-Up Briefing. Commissioners, after two budget retreats, multiple conversations, and careful analysis of costs, programs, and goals, today's briefing is the start of the department and division-specific presentations that will ultimately lead to final commission consideration of the port's 2024 budget. As always, these decisions are driven first by our mission and values, the need to successfully operate an efficient, effective aviation and maritime gateway, the importance of investing in infrastructure, our goals for community programs and regional and economic workforce development, and investing in our own workforce to help all of the rest of this happen. The good news is that our business lines are strong and growing. Um, we'll talk more about that in the presentations. However, uh, economic uncertainty and inflationary baseline cost drivers require that we must be measured and strategic in how we decide on new programs, new investments, and adding staff uh, moving forward. Today's presentation will give you a clear sense of how we are attempting to balance those factors and continuing to ensure that we're fulfilling our core strategic priorities. And next month, you'll receive similar briefings on the Economic Development Division, Maritime Division, and Aviation Division budgets. So I look forward to interactive discussion as we finalize these numbers in advance of November's final consideration of our proposed budget. So the presenters are, I'm going to start off with a few remarks, then we'll turn it, over, to turn it over to Dan Thomas, Chief Financial Officer, and then Michael Tong, Director of Corporate Budget, will uh, present as well. So with that, I think we'll turn to the presentation. <coughs> Next slide, please. So, Commissioners, this is just where we are in the timeline. We're in the, uh, the beginning of the budget briefings here in September. I can't believe it's September. It's the, almost the end of September, but here we are. It seems like we just started talking about the budget, but you know, things have been progressing. So, next slide, please. So, here, uh, Commissioners, just an overview of what we're going to present. So, it's not just central services. I'm going to talk about strategy to budget, our, our, our uh, philosophy and our approach to this. Then I'm going to talk about those key budget drivers and considerations. I talked a little bit about those, some of those drivers going forward. And then um, as a request in the past, we're going to give a snapshot. Uh, our CFO, Dan Thomas, will give a snapshot of the port-wide operating proposed budget going forward. So you can see 
uh, kind of a precursor. Instead of seeing it piecemeal and then wondering what it looks like rolled up, you're going to see some numbers there in the roll-up first. And then we'll go do a deeper dive into the central services operating budget of those, and, and we'll walk through those different elements in there. And then also, we know there's interest in this, so we're going to talk about equity and budgeting and that approach and some of those um, some of those approaches that we've done within the development of the budget, especially over the last few years of how we look at that. And then we'll talk about the um, uh, Central Services um, Capital Investment Plan, the CIP, uh, which is relatively small considered to the other parts, but it's an important part of our presentation. And then we'll look at the remaining budget schedule. So uh, next slide, please. So, Commissioners, just to, just to reiterate and just show where we um, as we look at the processes for us that gets us to a, a current year budget, you know, we sent, uh, we have the century agenda, and then that establishes, you know, the long term, that's our North Star that we guide by, uh, <coughs> set out by the commission in order to, uh, uh, to guide us mm -hmm. through different um, periods of time, five to ten years that you see here in our vision and goals as we set that up. And then on a strategic planning process, on an annual process, we do the, the uh, strength, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats analysis, the SWOT analysis, and then we identify any gaps based on that and based on the current environment that you're operating in. Then you develop your objectives related to that for a given period of time, and then you develop your given year 20, your given year business plan, which then produces your budget. So it shows that vertical, this slide is just an attempt to show that vertical alignment between, you know, what were um, our agreed to outcomes that we want and then adjusting in a given year to do that. Next slide, please. So, Commissioners, rather than walking through this, I'm just going to hear some, uh, some of those drivers and considerations in the development of the 2024 budget. I really want to return to, you know, we, we always start with a century agenda. What we're trying to progress in those, uh, you know, those key century agenda things, which are key to us, is operating the gateways, the aviation and maritime gateways. Uh, it's doing it in a uh, most sustainable way possible, and then also, um, and also doing... Um, developing economic opportunity uh, as well, which is, you know, we often refer to as the triple bottom line. So making progress on the triple bottom line is always the, um, where we focus ourselves in the budget uh, development within that. And now, and then we look at the environment that we're in within a given year. And this year, we happen to be not in a perfect storm of different events, but as you'll see in the presentation here, we are um, performing well as an organization, but all around us, let me use either you can use the metaphor that is either aviation or maritime. So we're either in turbulence or rough seas around us. The, st the ship is in, and the aircraft is in pretty good shape, and we're going forward, but there is turbulence around us. That's the uh, inflation that's going on here, the un, um, uh, international situations, which may affect things in both trade and other factors. Uh, the war in Ukraine is one, and other factors around us uh, doing that. So it also, in, in some cases, it's... Uh, related to inflation is also related to workforce. And for me, um, you know, and making sure we have a strong and vibrant workforce, which we're just talking about, is key to what you'll see in this budget this year, which will be rotating. A lot of our investments this year, inflation affects that as well, and also inflation affects our medical costs. As we, and we're making investments in our workforce to make sure that we're able to execute the projects that we have ahead of us. And you'll see that, and we'll have the exact details in here, which is, includes a, a, uh, uh, an increase in, uh, in pay, which is both based on pay, pay, pay for performance and on, on CPI to adjust for that. So having our, our workforce um, 
compensated both on the represented side and the non-rep side is very important for us making those investments moving forward. But we also have to account for medical costs for our workforce as well. So even though I'm talking here about the workforce, it is key to what we want to execute uh, during the coming year. So, uh, and within that, those, those elements will be represented uh, going forward. And also, um, for us, we want to continue those, those, also continue those equity and those uh, community investments that we've talked about and that the uh, commissioners have been champions of, and also do it in the most sustainable way possible as well. So, so all, we're trying to balance all these factors, and I think you'll see that in the, in the budget we're going to present to you today, and trying to do it in the most fiscally um, responsible manner possible going forward. So, okay, with that, I'm going to turn it over to Dan. I think we're on the next slide. I'll turn it over to Dan to sure. walk through and look forward to your questions and your feedback. So, Dan. Thank you, Steve. Is my mic on? Can you hear me? Great. Uh, thank you, Steve. Good afternoon, Commissioners. Yeah, as Steve mentioned, we wanted to just kick it off with a, a preview of the total port budget. Um, that's something we try to do. It's, it's just a snapshot. As you know, the budget discussions are ongoing. The divisions will be presenting in October. So there's always a chance that some things may uh, uh, be revised, but this is where it stands currently. As you can see, uh, operating revenues up pretty strongly by uh, about $75 million or a little under 8% compared to the 2023 budget. And that really reflects the continued recovery from the pandemic over the past several years. Uh, we'll, I'll show you a little bit more information on the next slide as to the composition of those revenues. Uh, if we exclude the aeronautical revenues at the airport, which as you know are based on cost recovery, uh, all the other port-wide operating revenues are up uh, about $52 million or 11.6%. And then that's, we're really seeing strong growth in a variety of our, our business segments, as you can see outlined here, <clears throat> from park, airport parking, rental cars, dining and retail, uh, and, and on the maritime side, uh, some continued strong growth in crews. Our operating expenses are up $50 million, or 8.7% from the 2023 budget. Um, we did look back, you know, over the past two years coming out of the pandemic, our O&M expense averaged about 2%, I'm sorry, 15% per year, which we don't believe is really sustainable. So we work to try to dial that down and, and, and uh, try to uh, contain those so that we can ensure more sustainable O&M expense growth over time. And then non-operating income before depreciation, as you can see, is up 25 million, or about 6.6% from the 2023 budget. Next slide, please. So I know this is a lot of numbers, and obviously not going to go through a lot of this, but there's a couple of things I wanted to call your attention to. Um, under the 2024 proposed budget column, third from the, from the right, uh, I want to call your attention to the total port operating revenues are 1,028,669,000. That is a new record, uh, achieving over a billion dollars of operating revenue for the port. That's a record for the port. So. Uh, again, uh, uh, evidence of the growth that we're, we're seeing over time. And then just to the right, and you look at the increases in revenues, again, I wanted to just touch upon a little bit the composition of the growth uh, uh, year of uh, 24 over 23. As you can see, aeronautical revenue is up about 23 million. Um, that reflects about 30% uh, of our total increase in operating revenues and uh, our airport, I mean, port-wide revenues. And again, as I mentioned, they are based on cost recovery. Uh, 
You can see cruise revenues up 10.3, our maritime revenues up 10.3 are largely reflecting increases in cruise. And I also wanted to call out the uh, what's labeled joint venture. You see a $4.7 million increase in revenues under joint venture. That's where we house the Seaport Alliance revenues. That's part of one of our business segments. But that's where the distributable revenue from um, the Northwest Seaport Alliance shows up. Uh, so that's pretty healthy growth. We actually think we're going to revise that upward a little bit. Uh, and you'll be getting a, a, a budget presentation from the Alliance uh, in October. Uh, but a lot, a lot of that growth is coming from the uh, Phase 2 of uh, Terminal 5 coming online next year. So we're seeing a nice bump in revenue there. But as you can see, overall port-wide revenue is up about $75 million, or just under 8%. Again, on the expenses, up $50 million, or 8.7%. And then NOI up $25 million year-over-year. Uh, year. And again, I wanted to just mention that about 75% or $18 million of that uh, is from the Aviation Division. And for the benefit of the public, just so uh, for transparency, as you know, uh, aviation uh, revenues and funds have to stay at the airport. They're self-contained under uh, airport uh, regulations, so are not available to fund broader port initiatives. Uh, and you'll be getting, the, uh, again, the operating division <clears throat> presentations in October, but I wanted to note, as we've taken a pre preliminary look at the CIP for Maritime and EDD, uh, we're, we're believing there will have to be some deferral of capital, uh, even with some revenue growth, that there's still not sufficient funds to fully fund the capital program. You'll be hearing more of that uh, during those presentations in October. <clears throat> so moving on to central services. Next slide, please. Actually, one more. So this is just a, a, a brief overview of central services. As you know, um, there's a, a variety. It's about 20 different departments, these providing administrative and other duties to the operating divisions and to the Northwest Seaport Alliance. Uh, and the costs of these departments are allocated through various formulas uh, to the operating divisions and to the alliance. And a portion also uh, of those costs are not allocated because they're funded by the tax levy. Many of the community programs and things fall into that category, so they're unallocated. Next slide, please. So just to give you a little sense of the methodology that we undertake to uh, arrive at the 2024 budget, our starting point is uh, the 2023 approved budget, obviously. But then we make some adjustments uh, to develop a, a, a sort of an adjusted baseline budget. And what we do is we remove items that were budgeted in 2023 that were one-time items, so they're not going to be reoccurring, so we take them out. We also have to make some adjustments. adjustments. We add in annualized costs for new positions that were budgeted last year for 2023, often for only a partial year. We've got to annualize those. And then we also had a number of mid-year additions uh, that were added to the budget uh, this year. And we also have to annualize th those and carry those forward. And then we make a few other adjustments for um, some non-discretionary contractual increases and some other increases, uh, like insurance as an example. And then we add in our assumptions on uh, payroll increases and medical benefits uh, to uh, develop sort of this adjusted baseline. Next, next slide, please. And just to walk through some of the key assumptions and drivers that are uh, behind these new, the baseline numbers, as Steve mentioned, 
uh, big focus on investment in the workforce. <coughs> Excuse me. We are assuming a 7% average non-represented pay increase. Um, you'll see later in the presentation, we've, that's kind of made up of an assumed 5% COLA plus a 2% merit pay increase. I wanted to just say those are still somewhat under consideration. As you know, HR uh, and their team are, are going through a very comprehensive uh, compensation project this year, looking at a lot of elements who are sort of redefining our pay programs. And so there's just a lot of moving pieces on that. So some of that is still subject to uh, revision as we move uh, into the process. But for now, we're assuming the 7% non-rep pay increase. Uh, our represented groups, their pay increases are based on uh, contractual um, uh, and negotiated contracts, some of which were already known and some of which will be negotiated here in the near future, so we don't know exactly what they will be. Maybe we have to make some assumptions. And then on the port-sponsored medical, uh, uh, self-funded medical program, we are looking at an 8% year-over-year increase in medical costs for that program. Uh, that is kind of steep and somewhat concerning, so we're going to be continuing to look at how we can better manage our, uh, our, our medical benefit costs. They had been trending fairly modestly over the past few years, uh, but we've had a, a big spike this year in terms of additional costs, and that is playing forward into future years. I mentioned other payroll increases. I, I mentioned annualizing the payroll for the uh, new FTEs and the mid-year FTEs and the non-discretionary contractual increases. I'll mention that we have a lot of more information in the appendix. We didn't want to go through all the details, but there's a lot of additional information in the appendix if you wanted to see specifics on any of these uh, items. Next slide, please. This is our so-called waterfall diagram, which kind of helps uh, illustrate how we, how we get from the 2023 budget, which as you can see was a little under 163 million uh, budgeted, and then we show under those first uh, number of adjustments where we've taken out the one-time items and, and made those other adjustments that I've described uh, to come up with a, a new baseline before additions, and then we show uh, in the next section we show some of the additional increases coming from payroll, uh, and then the new budget requests, which we'll talk a little bit about. I do want to apologize. There's some errors in these numbers. There were some last-minute changes just before we had to publish these. Uh, so the additional baseline payroll increase down towards the bottom, which is showing as $7,029,000, that number should actually be $10,678,000. I apologize for that. And then also the bottom line for the new 2024 proposed budget, which says 176,834. That's actually 180,483. So I apologize for that oversight, and we will get those corrected. Um, overall, this represents a 10.8% increase in central services cost uh, 2024 budget compared to 2023. The, yeah, the overall increase is 180 million. I mean, I mean the overall budget is 180.483, which is a 10.8% increase over 2023. Next slide, please. So I wanted to talk a little bit about new requests. We had quite a few new requests um, <clears throat> as we went into the process that we had to review uh, this table kind of... Uh, uh, highlights those. As you can see, overall, we had 81 uh, new requests, which was quite a few we had to sort through and make decisions on. 
<clears throat> but uh, we, as you can see, we approved only 37 or less than half, only about 46% of the new requests overall were, were approved. Uh, the total O&M amount of the new request was about $8 million, uh, and we only approved about $3.4 million of that, or 42%. And at the bottom, as you can see, uh, we had 53.5 new FTE requests, and of those, we only approved 17 uh, or 31.8 percent. And again, this is really reflecting our, our, our feeling that we need felt we need, needed to contain expenses, and we're we're very um, we scrutinize those additions very carefully. Yeah, let me make a, if I commissioner, so if I can make a comment on the, the number of requests. As we reviewed these, all the requests I thought were <clears throat> were justified. We just couldn't afford them. There was no nice to have. It was like uh, these were meaningful requests that would help us further this, but we had to look at them very closely, as we say, with a strategic approach to try to control the, to balance the different things and to accomplish our major core things. So I just want to say that is, <clears throat> you know, these are hard decisions as we work through with the staff, not that these were easy decisions that we said, oh, we're just going to reduce this because um, we had to give them careful consideration of each of the requests. And I wanted to clarify, you see 17 FTEs were approved. As you can see the note below there, there are actually 19 of those FTE requests were approved, um, uh, but two of those we uh, elected to add this year. There was a request to uh, the urgency, there was some urgency on those, so those were added this year. So 17 next year, but two were added this year. Next slide, please. Sure. Can we take sure. a quick uh, breath uh, here? Maybe I open it up for a few questions. Oh, sure. Commissioner Mohammed. I just, a, a quick clarifying question. So. These are the FTE requests. Are TLTs accounted for separately, or are those looked at differently? I'm sorry, which? Like temporary, uh, short-term uh, employment, the TLTs. Yeah, I'm not sure. Are they included in FTEs, Michael? Uh, <clears throat> uh, uh, no, they, are, not they did not, yeah. And we did not receive any of those for 2024 budget request. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Any other questions? Go ahead, Commissioner. Yeah. Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, the past two years, uh, and for central services as well as the total port, our O&M expense increased about 15 percent per year. But when you take a look at maritime and parts that apart, cruise revenue Yes, we have seen some uh, pretty uh, robust revenue increases. So then what accounts for the difference? The difference in? Well, for if it was 15 percent. Well, so O&M increased 15% uh, per year in the past, and that largely reflected really coming from the pandemic years <clears throat> when we really constrained budgets. I mean, we slashed budgets, we cut out discretionary spending, we froze hiring. So those, those first two years of the pandemic were, were quite constrained. So the following two years, we kind of had to add back a lot of resources just to get back to normal. Uh, and to uh, you know, re re refill a lot of those, refill frozen positions and things like that. So there was a natural spring back from that. But we recognize that now we're, we're kind of normalizing again, and we're, we really want to make sure that we have sustainable cost increases moving into the future. So we, we feel, felt like we had to dial them back a little bit and couldn't con con continue with those kind of cost increases. All right, I think we can continue. Go okay. Ahead. So next slide, please. 
So you want to kind of give you a sense of uh, where the uh, new approved budget requests are by department and by order of magnitude, as you can see. Uh, and, and we'll talk about a few of these, some of the key drivers in the next slide, but this gives you kind of a visual representation of which departments really got the, the most new new uh, uh, requests funded. As you can see, police is a big one. We'll talk more about that, uh, accounting and financial reporting, engineering, and so forth. But just gives you a visual, visual representation of where the larger dollar ads were uh, for these different departments. Mr. Calkins? Does accounting and financial reporting include CPO? No. Where are they housed? CPO is down. See, they're not on here. They, they did not show up here because they didn't, we did not get any approved uh, <clears throat> amount or they did not request any new one. They okay. did. Yeah. yeah. They had no additions. Thanks. And we did make, I'm sorry, Commissioner, just to, just to add to that one, we did make substantial uh, additions to the CPO staff in the in a Prior previous years. budget. Commissioner Azagal. I'm wondering for the 60K, am I ahead on page 14? We can certainly, uh, page. For the 60K affiliated with the commission, is that the commission office operations or? That is commission office, okay. yes. Okay. Uh, are commission asks on projects? The commission priorities? Yeah, we can talk a little bit about that. Our, our Steve can I know he just sent you uh, a memo recently about the status of some of those. We we will be highlighting some of them in here as well. Some of the ones that are, are funded in central services. Uh, many that some of the other ones are spread out through other divisions as well. I'd just be interested to know how the sum of our ass compared to the we can look at that commission, but a lot of those are folded into the individual into the individual divisions in order to get the work. So if we could go to the next slide, I can go to a little bit more uh, descriptive uh, information about where some of these larger, uh, largest budget additions have occurred. So I'm not going to go through all of these, but just I want to highlight some of them. So first and foremost, as you know, police uh, and public safety was one of the larger increases. A big driver of that is the increase in jail costs, where they pay for the South Correctional Facility. Uh, they're currently uh, budgeting about $900,000 per year for that, but they're um, looking at their numbers this year, which are volume-driven. Um, they felt that they needed to increase that budget, so that budget has been increased by $450,000 for next year. And by the way, we do have representatives from a lot of the departments if you have more specific questions. Uh, police also funded uh, two FTEs, one to support the 911 Communications Center and also uh, uh, a police specialist to help them with some of their administrative needs, particularly around around scheduling and payroll. Uh, the accounting department, accounting and financial reporting, uh, again reflecting kind of growing operational needs. That department really uh, is impacted a lot by growing business volumes, handling all the transactions. Uh, they manage a lot of technology systems through the PeopleSoft, our ERP system, and, and the payroll system as well. They support that. Um, so they've been really falling behind in terms of having enough resources to manage and administer those systems, all the interfaces we have uh, that are happening all across the port. So we added another business technology uh, analyst, and also we, they added uh, an accountant and an analyst to support revenue services, uh, which is also a, a growing need in the organization to keep up with that. The other one I wanted to highlight there is a new vendor management um, portal that they want to implement. 
which would help strengthen controls around getting vendors set up and getting payments um, managed uh, in a more secure fashion. Uh, so that's one of the things that they uh, added. Engineering, another big driver. Um, obviously, the capital plan is continuing to grow. Uh, they, every budget uh, review cycle, they show us the forward-looking capital plan by year. And as you can imagine, it's growing pretty significantly. So they have added additional staff, eight additional FTEs. Uh, many of their FTEs are partially capitalized, but we can't fully capitalize them. But I would also add that um, uh, many of their FTEs that they want to add is really to offset the use of consultants. Consultants are more expensive for engineering, and they've done a lot of analysis as to the, the cost of an FTE versus the cost of a consultant. And they uh, are developing strategy over time where they can reduce the number of consultants by uh, swapping them out for FTEs and, and saving costs in the process. Uh, HR, again, a couple of um, operational ads uh, supporting our workforce, uh, an additional data analyst and uh, a business tech analyst to support their systems and, and data needs. Uh, we're planning on a port leadership conference next year. And then uh, also I think this was one of the commission uh, priorities was some additional support for employee resource groups. So we did fund $20,000, uh, and we're still trying to figure out how that might get allocated, but uh, did want to highlight that. And I think the big one under external relations, in addition to an addition, a position that will uh, support the uh, administration of the, uh, the growing number of community impact programs, did fund $75,000 for language access uh, under the commission's order to improve language access. So funding has been provided for that. Um, as you can see, the, one of the larger items in OEDI is the Maritime High School. Uh, that, again, we treat that as a new item. We want to look at that every year. And, um, so that one was also funded. And then uh, the, the, the very last one I want to call out is uh, under the HR compensation project, which I mentioned earlier. Um, we really struggled with we wanted to put some kind of a number in because we know there's going to be a dollar impact next year when that work is, was completed. Uh, and there's, there's still a lot of uncertainty as to the exact timing of completing that work. It's very complicated and, and what the dollar impacts of that would be. Uh, but we didn't want to have no funding in there, so we wanted to be prudent. So we came up with a number for now. It's $6 million port-wide we plugged in. The central services share of that is $2.2 million. We recognize it's just a placeholder. The final number is going to be different, might be a little higher, might be a little lower, but we thought it was prudent to have some kind of a placeholder uh, for next year's budget to uh, contemplate uh, uh, the impacts of the comp project when they finally implement that. Okay, with that, I believe I'll turn it over to Michael. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Dan. Uh, good afternoon, Commissioners and Executive Director Metric. Um, so this slide just kind of zoom in a little bit about the new FTE. Uh, <clears throat> the blue bar um, showed the requested number of FTE, and the green one is the, uh, the number uh, got approved. So as you can see here, uh, <clears throat> between the um, engineering and uh, PCS, uh, total of 10 FTE uh, got approved, and most of those, uh, as Stan mentioned a little bit uh, earlier, is really supporting the growing capital projects. And then the accounting and HR, those are really, you know, um, try to meet that um, desperate need for uh, the growing uh, operational needs among all the division and central services. And then uh, overall, um, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, you know, we have 
five uh, FTE requests, and then we got uh, 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 <coughs> 17 of that, including two kind of you know treated as a mid-year approval for 2023. So it's about one third of that. Um, uh, so um, overall, I guess it's really you know it's uh, pretty uh, tight, and we have to you know. Uh, make some tough decisions, including a lot of those. We recognize that some are strong need, um, but you know, we cannot approve that. And we can take another look at that next year during the, um, you know, during the uh, 2024, if there's some uh, we, um, the high demand, then we could always have a process. And we try to establish a uh, mid-year uh, <coughs> new FT requests process as well as what we've been doing uh, in the past, you know, two to three years. Um, next slide, please. Can I ask a question before we move on? And maybe this is for you, Executive Director Metric, but obviously that uh, first line really jumps out, um, you know, in terms of number of requests. And we've just heard a presentation about a half billion dollar project. We've got a number of others in the works. Uh, we obviously need a lot of engineers right now. I, I personally don't have any, I, I couldn't tell you the total number of engineers we currently have on staff, so I, don't, I wouldn't know even, um, you know, what percentage that would represent in terms of an increase. That said, it, I know that you and I have talked about the need to make sure that we are, we have the expertise in-house to manage this incredible period of capital construction. So I would love to just know, um, you know, how, what was the decision making around out of the 29, there were eight approved. Is it, um, you know, any further insight you could give us into that? Well, I think it really is looking at, you know, <coughs> capital delivery is a key thing for us to have a, uh, an overall approach to it. And that includes both the engineers, but it also includes, you know, what staffing is necessary. You, uh, I think a previous question came up on CPO. You know, do we have enough lawyers? Do we have enough CPO? Do we have enough HR staff to bring on the people, the engineers that we need? And then to grow the engineers, because we think we need to grow them. So this is an effort to look at what was proposed that we uh, um, come up in a process with a strategy to, to hire and then to grow them as we go forward to do that. So we would love to come back, talk to the commissioners either on 221s or others to talk about our overall approach to that and how you know, we're gonna, we're gonna have to grow the capacity to deliver those capital programs in the future because once you look at those, we need to have that and it's a combination. We heard um, earlier um, talking about you know, what combination of uh, Port of Seattle staff and consultants that we bring on board in order to, to, to do that. And we'd be glad to talk to you, but this is, fits into like, what can we hire and what can we, as we grow those um, engineers of, of the future, project managers and, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, that we have them on board. So that's, this is just, you know, within that plan to try to do that, what we can bring on in 24, as, but knowing that we need more of a, we're going to have to build more capacity going forward. So. Do you feel as if the commission has put constraints on your ability to say yes to some of these that you personally would would uh, maybe loosen those constraints a little bit? I know this is you know it's no I don't I don't I don't think so because stuff. we have to it's like you you have to you know having um, you know we need to build we need to ramp up this needs to be a ramp up we can't actually this is. Uh, I don't know. The answer is no. I don't not feel. I do not feel the commission is not supportive of what we want to do in this regard, and we aren't uh, artificially constraining this. But we're being realistic about what we can bring on, and as we grow the 
as we grow this um, capacity to deliver capital programs. But I appreciate the interest in that because I think that needs to be a focus for us. Uh, I think the whole region, let me just comment on capital projects in general. The whole region, you know, has, uh, uh, lacks, uh, everybody's looking for staff to do these things and we're all uh, increasing within that. And, you know, we even talk about, well, how can we work together to grow uh, those number of engineers that we need here um, to compete for, to, to build those capital programs. So, but the answer to your question, no, I do not feel constrained to where we are, but we need to build, we need to have the HR staff to, to in, in the policies to recruit the engineers, to bring them in in cohorts of those and to move us forward. So that I'd be glad to talk about that. that that's a really forward. helpful explanation. I understand that it, you, you know, you, you grow one part of the ecosystem without the other supporting parts in it, that's gonna fail. And so this all needs to happen in tandem. And there are reasonable rates at which you could expand the capacity. If you push beyond that, then you're gonna have folks who uh, are underutilized or not effectively employed, or even that well you couldn't or, yeah. executability. Let me. I'm sorry to cut you off, yeah, but no. I was just going to say, even to grow, just just having the funding may not get you to where you want to right. be. I'm, I'll stop. Great. I appreciate that. Thank you, Commissioner. If I might add, another consideration was uh, engineering. Like a lot of departments, uh, currently have some uh, a number of unfilled positions. Currently, mm. as we were reviewing, we, we like to look at that those statistics, and so I think the approach has been. You know, make progress on, you know, fill your existing positions uh, and see how that goes. And then as we get into next year, and you've got some new ones, but also remember that Steve has the ability to add positions mid-year. And, we, and we've told uh, departments that if they come back and they still feel constrained and they can, they can well justify new positions, we can consider mid-year additions as well. Thank you. Great looks like Janice is online. I don't know if she wanted to make a comment or? Yeah, no, thank you. Um, I will say that thank you for asking that question because when we were putting together these requests, we were looking at a number of different factors and one of them was to reduce the over-reliance on consultants, especially in aviation where we were projecting about 40% FTEs and 60% consultants and really just trying to get to more of a 50-50 um, participation of staff and, and consultants, but we recognize that uh, we have the, the eight that are approved and we can work with that and then uh, take a mid-year review next year to see where we're at. I do think that we're also paying attention to the economy and that if there is a softening in the market, especially on the building side, there may be staff that is available that would be that would want to come to the port as an FTE. So we're really looking at that and seeing those opportunities and then trying to lean in and leverage that. So we're excited for the eight that we have and recognize that as we move forward, we will come back and revisit this conversation. So thank you. Thanks, Janice. We can keep moving. Okay, <clears throat> Okay. next slide, please. So this is a... Uh, post uh, FTE summary for 2024. Uh, we start with the 2023 approved budget of 919.2 uh, FTEs, and then we have 11.5 uh, mid-year approvals, and then also have one transfer uh, uh, to aviation arts program. And uh, we eliminate one position in HR um, <clears throat> from next year, uh, and then um, adding the 17 that we mentioned a little bit earlier. So. 
bottom line is that we have proposed uh, 945.7 uh, FT for uh, central services next year. Next slide, please. So this is the, uh, for central services, uh, <coughs> the proposed budget uh, is 180.5 uh, million, and which is 17.6 uh, million or 10.8% increase from 2023 budget. Um, on the payroll side, we are um, seeing an increase of 14.7 million or uh, close to 12%, uh, and mainly driven by uh, an estimated of 5% COLA. Again, you know, this is uh, still an estimate. And we don't have the final number until early next year. Um, and then a 2% two, a 2 uh, average pay for performance um, assumption. Uh, we're also seeing an 8% port-wide sponsored medical uh, cost increase, as Dan mentioned a little bit earlier. And then we incorporate the 11.5 year approval um, into the 2024 budget, uh, plus the 17 uh, new FTE uh, that approved it for next year. And then also, as Dan mentioned a little bit earlier, we have the 2.2 million uh, placeholder for the um, compensation project implementation. Uh, on the long payroll side, uh, the increase is 2.8 million, uh, which should be percent above 7.4%, and mainly due to a higher on-site consultant um, and insurance expenses and jail costs uh, for the police department and some other overall contractual increase that Dan mentioned a little bit earlier as well. And again, you can see all the details uh, by account, by department, and with some explanation of the increase in the appendix, uh, specifically in slide 43 and 44. Uh, next slide, please. And uh, <clears throat> the, this is a summary of the community program. We expect to spend uh, 19.3 million next year. Uh, the three major categories, the uh, workforce development, economic development, and equity diversity inclusion. And on the uh, right-hand side, you can see some of the major programs under each of those categories. And again, we have the detail of the all the 18 community programs in, uh, in the appendix, as well as some of the, uh, the major programs that are funded by tax levy as well. So you can find all those information um, in the appendix. Um, next slide, please. So uh, we do want to highlight a few of the uncertainty and budget risks um, so that, you know, uh, some of them you already saw that and, um, you know, the economic um, the uncertainty is still, you know, um, there's some uh, potential for recession. And then the compensation program that we um, talked about a little bit earlier. Uh, and then some of the ability to um, execute, you know, the, uh, the, the programs um, and including the capital plans. Um, also, um, you've been brief about the um, large environmental mediation liability uh, in July, so um, those are probably not way next, next year, but we certainly expect probably within the next few years. Um, and last but not least, our ability to hire a large number of uh, FTE, um, and, and in addition to the turnover uh, that we have seen uh, you know, in the past uh, two couple of years. Uh, for now, we assume the vacancy rate um, five percent is similar to what we did uh, in the 2023 budget. So that's already factored into the the uh, proposed budget right now. So, with that, let me turn it back to uh, Dan to go for the equity uh, slides. Next slide, please. Thank you, Michael. Next slide. 
So we wanted to pro <coughs> provide a little uh, information on equity spending. Uh, as you know, Commission provided a policy directive earlier in the year, the equity spending pilot project, uh, and you asked us to uh, find a way to identify and define equity spending and to uh, look back uh, till 2019 and actually track uh, our, our equity spending over those years and then look at it as a percent of operating expense. Uh, this has been previously reported out. We're calling it now the ESAP, or Equity Spending Accountability Project, I think is what we're calling it. Um, so uh, it's, it's starting to take root. And uh, we, we thought there was an opportunity to also then merge that with the budget process. So since we already identified a way to track equity spending, we thought it would be useful then to, to identify and track the spending in, the, in next year's budget so we can report out that and also look at that on a percent, uh, as a percent of total operating expenses. So highlighted here, and I won't go through this whole list, but these are for central services. These are some of the key elements of equity spending uh, that are, is currently in the proposed 2024 budget, and you can read through that list, but many of these obviously are, are familiar with you. Uh, we understand that the South King County Community Impact Fund may, may, may get some review here up in the next, within the next month or so uh, with some considerations about possibly continuing that. I would mention also that each division will also present something similar. So divisions also will have equity spending identified in their budgets. And when they present to you in October, they will also flag uh, what they've got in their proposed 2024 uh, budget. Um, the, uh, the definitions of equity spending and the criteria that we use is included in the appendix. I think we've shared that with you previously. And I would also mention that as part of this uh, budgeting process, we've also posed, as we have in the past, some specific questions to uh, departments and divisions about their equity, their approach towards equity spending. Uh, and we'll, we'll be collating and summarizing some of that information. And we may provide some more information later in the process as to uh, what our learnings are from the equity spending and budgeting initiative. What does, what does the A in ESAP stand for? Accountability. Next slide, please. <clears throat> this just highlights the equity spending in the central services budget uh, uh, year over year, 2023 and 2024 budget, which I don't think we're showing a key there. Oh, yes, there's a key on the right. Um, again, you can just see year over year, and you can also see how it breaks out into the various categories that have been identified uh, for those different components of equity spending. Uh, I believe you're also aware that we've been developing a dashboard uh, which will be able to provide online. I'm, I think it's already out online. It's been going through some refinements. And I think the plan is, if it's not already done, is to provide that for the public as well so they have more transparency into our equity spending. Next slide, please. Commissioners, you can see we're attempting different ways to show the information that you've asked for to and kind of categorize that so you can make it more easy to pull out rather than those wall of, wall of numbers to do that. And I appreciate Dan and his team trying to do that and working with Bukta and her team as well. Next slide, please. Uh, so the previous two slides were for central services, <clears throat> but we also wanted, again, give you a sort of a port-wide snapshot, uh, snapshot as where it stands today. So if you, these are the total dollar amounts of equity spending for the port as a whole going back to 2019. Again, this is information I believe that's been shared with you previously, but you can see the growth over time uh, reaching $20.5 million that is currently uh, included in the 2024 budget for the equity spending. And then next slide, please, looking at it, then I know you wanted to look at it as a 
percentage of port operating expense. Um, as you can see, the growth over there, and uh, if for 2024, as it stands now, we are looking at, uh, again, over 3%, about 3.3% uh, of the uh, equity spending as a percent of total port operating expense. Uh, again, we would emphasize this, as you know, it's a pilot project, so we're continuing to uh, evolve and, and refine that, so hopefully more to come in that, in that program. Next slide, please. We're going to turn it over to Krista Sadler to go through the uh, Central Services CIP, which is primarily uh, IT projects. Now on. <laughs> Good afternoon, Commissioners and Executive Director Metric. Uh, I get to talk about uh, the CIP every year because ICT makes up the majority of that. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and uh, skip the summary page and get right to the details. So next slide, please. Um, so I'm sorry, can you go back one? <laughs> I did. Okay. Um, so if we take a look at these... Um, uh, these particular things, I, this, is, uh, this is out of order a little bit, so I'm sorry. Okay, so we'll just take a look at this one. So um, if you look at the overall thing, I think the only thing, we're going to go into more detail here in a minute, but the overall, one thing I wanted to point out is that CIP cash flow management reserve. Um, <clears throat> so we budget at the project level, and uh, we budget as if everything moves forward perfectly. Uh, as planned, but we know that doesn't happen, <laughs> and so uh, at the management, the, the management reserve addresses that at a program level. So I think that that uh, the finance puts that in every year to to balance that out to something more reasonable. Okay, next slide. Okay, uh, talking about the commission authorized projects that we have uh, currently in place. Going to the right slide here. Um, so all of these projects are in process, and the the one thing I wanted to point out here is that we have uh, several systems that we have selected a new system via a competitive process uh, or soon will and those include the ID badge system, the public safety dispatch system, energy management and then the environmental data management system. Um, other systems are in process, they're uh, largely equipment uh, or, or construction uh, improvements but all of these are in process now and moving forward well slide okay projects pending authorization so uh, we are working hard on getting these uh, forward for authorization we do expect that three of these will come forward in Q4 of 2023 for authorization and that includes the physical access control system refresh um, the enterprise firewall refresh and then the specification document management software uh, the rest of them were continuing to work on initiation documents and, and we'll bring those forward in 2024. Next slide. Okay, small capital projects. Um, so this is a, a, a very standard list of, of CIPs for small capital projects, uh, if you've seen them many years. Uh, and all of those have fairly consistent spend. On this one, I will point out the engineering PCS fleet replacement. The reason that this one is large this year is because they're purchasing some really large equipment, some backhoes and, and a water truck and things like that. Um, so the ICT side of the house, these are used for small capital projects. Uh, on our infrastructure side, um, they help deliver um, just projects that help with availability of our systems and our communication. 
uh, and then um, also cyber security protections as well. Uh, on the business side of that, uh, we use this for a lot of different things. Um, uh, a lot of it is such, such as our continuous, a lot of times when we bring new systems to you that we're gonna build, we worry about, are you just gonna let it get stale? So we do continuous improvement on those particular systems and those are for like CPO. Uh, engineering, um, but then we also deliver for the business port-wide systems for the business with the small capital project as well. Um, next slide, and I think that might be it. Dan, is that you? Questions for Krista? Questions for me. All right, do any of my colleagues have any questions for staff? I can go. Commissioner Calkins. Um, I, I, as now I think this is my sixth year going through this process. Um, I love the upgrades to the presentation. <laughs> I know you guys, there's so much work behind it and it's uh, always a challenge to try to present so much information in a consolidated way that a bunch of uh, lay folks like us and the general public can absorb. Uh, I particularly like slide 12 um, because if we wanna flip to that, we have that. Yes, that's the one, um, thank you. Uh, because it shows, uh, it, it's a really clear way of seeing the, the differences between previous year. Um, and for me, that's really helpful. Um, and I think, you know, in years where there were wild swings, it would really illustrate it as well. Um, so thank you for that. Um, uh, the other question I had uh, was, uh, as I, Budgets cause me to reflect on previous years and think, what was I wrong about when I was thinking, when we were all sitting here talking about budgets for upcoming years. Um, and we were wrong about inflation, right, over the last few years. And nobody anticipated pandemic, and then nobody anticipated the sort of pandemic-related inflationary effects. Um, it, we've done okay in that for a variety of reasons. Uh, but I'm wondering, from your expert opinion, how, how are we baking in the uncertainty? Are we erring on the side of a high inflationary environment to continue? And, you know, I get, and I, as I thought about that, I was like, well, if we, if we err on the side of assuming high inflation, then we won't plan to do certain projects because we won't think we have enough to cover it. And I guess that's better than assuming we're gonna get back down to 2% as the Fed is hoping to get to. And if they don't, then all of a sudden we've spent more than you know, we've committed more than, than we'll have. So I'm just wondering from the perspective of our expert budget writers, where are we on that? Assuming higher or assuming lower? Where are we on well, that? Well, <clears throat> you know, a lot of this gets built up the bottom up. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, we try to build in expected contractual increases. And in many cases, contractual increases can be tied to CPI. So I, I'm, I think in many cases, we have built in reasonable assumptions about what uh, CPA, the CPI, the impact may be on uh, some of those. Um, payroll is another big one since we have COLA uh, provisions in both our <clears throat> non-represented and represented uh, pay uh, pay groups. That we have some, we have made some assumptions of where we think currently where we think CPI is running. They're mostly based on uh, full year averages, so we don't have the full year yet, but we've made some assumptions. So we're doing our best to incorporate those into our into our budgets. Um, I think the other big one is on capital, which we haven't really well, focused there, and you'll hear more with the divisions. 
Uh, but I think they're trying to be as realistic as they can in terms of looking at future forecasted construction cost increases for their projects. So I, I think we're trying to be as realistic as we can about what we know. Uh, uh, but we're not we're not incorporating any additional contingencies, if you will. We've kind of moved away from including contingencies in our budgets because we, we often tend to underspend our budgets anyway, particularly on payroll and uh, outside services. We just don't spend them as fast as we think uh, we're going to. So we didn't <clears throat> want to sort of uh, compound our problems by then adding additional contingencies because those do provide some natural cushions to absorb some things that occur during the year. So it's kind of a balanced approach, uh, but I'm not sure there's a, there's a perfect approach. But I, I'm feeling comfortable that where we stand now, uh, that we're, we should be able to manage uh, into next year. And if we're lucky and the, if the Federal Reserve can continue to notch down interest rates, we might actually some of that some of that inflation mitigated. Thank you. Commissioner, if I can just, um, just to add to that is that we, we as Dan said, I think we put a number in there that's a best guess, and then we think we can adjust because it's not perfect. We we don't think we're going to guess it, but we know within within tolerances that we can adjust to that within a given within a given budget. That's our approach. Commissioner Azagawa. I just want to give you positive feedback on this presentation. Um, you know, in years past, I've received it, and I said I I'm, I'm getting the numbers, and I'm hearing what you're telling me but this tells that story that I think we've been looking for you've heard it before the budget is a value statement this does an excellent job of demonstrating our goals it ties it all back to our mission that triple bottom line that executive director metric opened with about promoting our economy and our environment and equity um, so I really want to commend you um, on this product that you've presented for us in the public today um, and I also want to say that um, I think what's a core piece of this story is beyond the projects and the amazing work that we're doing to facilitate a modern and safe and um, an efficient facility and operation is that the best investment that we will always make is going to be in our workforce from the COLA and merit-based increases um, and the conversation about growing capacity to be able to deliver on these important projects. Um, I'm really hearing about the steps that we're taking as an organization to mitigate that projected attrition and the professionalism of our workforce um, by attracting new talent and retaining and cultivating existing talent. Um, I am wondering, do some of these increases also um, apply to our commission office staff? Will they see some of the benefits of these Cola, well, merit they would oh, yes, increases. absolutely. For any non <coughs> non represented staff uh, in in the commission office would <coughs> would you. achieve those increases as well. well and, and represented <coughs> staff get increases too, but I don't believe you have any in your office. And then I I also want to mention that I really love the piece about the equity spend. I just want. Um, to acknowledge how important um, our um, equity spend tool has been for us to be able to really understand this budget um, and exactly how we are dedicating our resources to closing the equity gap. Um, I love ESAP, let's use it. Um, and I also wanted to highlight page number 23 that identifies specific strategies, including community investments, removing systemic barriers, advancing diversity, 
promoting engagement and also environmental justice. This is incredibly helpful. I love the use of your bar graphs, particularly in page 24 on the next page, um, which shows how we are making progress towards this year by year. I'm so glad that the tool that we've instrumented can give us that retrospective ability. And I look forward to seeing how we're going to use this moving forward. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner. And I'd really like to throw out a, a condemnation to um, uh, Bukja Kesar and our change team members who have been working on the ESAP project and equity and budgeting. They put a lot, a lot of effort and great thought and some innovation into that. So I just wanted to call out yeah. and give kudos to all that great work that they've done. Yeah, shout out to Eric Schinfeld as well. I know he was involved in that. Um, I have a question. Um, you know, I remember this so vividly because it was like week two of my time as a commissioner um, when the pandemic hit us and we were going through all the scenarios. I remember the presentation you gave us. There was a best case scenario, a bad case scenario, and a worst case scenario. <laughs> and I just want to emphasize it's worse with an E, not worst with a T, <laughs> because uh, we, we weren't sure exactly how bad this thing was going to be. And, and I distinctly remember the forecast we had for revenue uh, and what we might have had to have done. Uh, I, you know, I think it, it, it would be helpful for the public, but also just as a remember how, how, where are we relative to our forecasts from pre-pandemic, from 2020? From my understanding, we were recovering quicker than what we expected, but I just want validation that that is uh, true. Yes, I, I would say that is probably true. We, we have done better uh, over the past few years than we had anticipated back then. I thought, I think we felt it might be a slower recovery. Yeah. Uh, and especially something like cruise business. You know, we didn't know, as you know, we lost the cruise business entirely right. in 2020. Uh, and then we thought it was going to come back much more slowly than it, it did. And I think we were pleasantly surprised to see the, the strong growth in cruise. And also in the non-aeronautical revenue categories, ADR, parking, uh, we've seen some really strong growth, I think. It's exceeded what our, our forecasts were back then. Yeah, so I actually wanted to follow up with a question around the aviation revenue. I saw that they were expecting a 7% jump in, in that. Uh, you know, our passenger levels have not quite reached the, the, the number that we had in 2019. We're close, but not quite there. We're going to be short a few million, I believe. And so where where is that extra 7% coming from specifically? Is that because we raised parking rates? Or, I mean, I'm curious how we can be below our 2019 passenger volume levels, but still increase our air, uh, aviation revenues by 7%. Yeah, you, you'll hear more in October, but I think a couple of things, like you say, yeah, parking, <clears throat> you know, rates got uh, in, increased this year. So um, even the volumes have been coming back, but also the rates, I think, helped drive that. Um, I'm trying to think of what other areas, rental cars, I know that there's actually, um, not necessarily more transactions as much, but more, more. Um, uh, I think the fees that the rental car charges are mm -hmm. charging their customers have gone up, so that increases our concession fees. Don't have all the answers. I'm not sure we have anyone from aviation available. Well, to I don't know, those. Commissioner, because we are going to give a complete presentation in and, October. Uh, the managing Director Lance Little is oh, here to talk about that, or we can. No, I'm happy to defer to. We can uh, defer that till we can do the complete ABA. budget. Sorry, you know, we won't we can give, not this time. They're going to paint the. I'm just going to say. I'm just trying to save uh, managing. We we will do a deep dive on all the drivers of uh, yeah. of the budget in uh, in that. that that's in that fine. I thought dive. maybe we. Would you know, this know is, the answer off the Let me just say that that's that's we want to give the snapshot up front yeah. and then, but it's uh, um, but I think if we can just defer that to do a deeper dive into that, uh, unless managing director Lance. 
little, would you like to talk about that now or defer it to? Well, we can punch it, don't worry about it, Lance. <coughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah, why are they going up by more than the employment? Oh, okay. uh, maybe people listening won't listen next time. So, uh, <laughs> good afternoon, commissioners. I'm Lance Little, aviation managing um, director. I think when I walked in, commissioner, I heard you say you were at the question was related to the lower number employment numbers. Yet we had higher revenues. Yeah. So there are several um, reasons for that. Parking rates are one of them. Also, we find more people are um, parking in the parking lots as well. Also, even though we have less transactions on the rent-a-car, um, in the rent-a-car facility, the rates, the actual rates are higher. So we've seen an increase in that. And we've also seen an increase in airport dining and retail as well. So there are multiple factors um, why, we're, why we're seeing the increased um, revenues, even though the numbers, the employment numbers are still less than uh, 2019 numbers. Great. Thanks for that explanation. And I think another area, too, was, as you know, we had a lot of federal relief back during the pandemic. And we used a lot of those funds to buy down air, airline costs, right? We paid debt service and things that would have been in the cost recovery formulas. So their revenues were a lot lower because we were offsetting their costs. Those, those grant funds have now been used. So we're seeing the, the uh, bouncing back of those revenues, I think, is another factor. And then lastly, and may, this, may also be a, this may also be a question for later. And so feel free to punt it. Um, it looks like you're expecting a 9.6% increase in the joint venture, which is the Seaport Alliance. Does that, that seems kind of optimistic given how low volumes are right now. How, how did we get there? Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of that is, come, is from the, the Terminal 5 Phase 2 project coming online uh, in yeah. uh, January of next year. So we're getting a lot of additional revenue from that. Again, you'll get the full Seaport yeah. Alliance briefing here uh, later in October. I think there's also a big chunk of money coming from the, the CMA payment, you may, you may recall, yeah. that they were owing us, and there was a, a workout of how they did that. I think there's like $6 million coming from that. Um, so there's a number of items that are, that are driving up revenue compared to uh, this year's budget. Okay, thanks. Yeah, Commissioner Mohammed. I have a quick follow-up to that last uh, question about the Seaport Alliance. Are we still paying them for T-46? Yes, we are still paying for them, them for the 29 acres on T46. And are, has the justification for that changed, or is it exactly the same status? Well, I, yeah, I mean, I don't, Steve may want to weigh in. I mean, the justification is that we executed an agreement to pay it. It's a 20-year agreement with a number of options, so I think we're continuing to be bound by that agreement. Yes, commissioners, we're bound by that agreement, except it's offset by if they do, do use it for storage or other purposes, and then, of course, that's taken from the funds that we're owed them. But I would add them. that there's very little of that next year. That's a helpful reminder as we go into conversations with the alliance. Um, well, okay. Um, well, first of all, I just again I want to say thank you for this presentation. It was just really helpful, and your you guys' strategy as a whole has been great to be cautious and and taking a strategic approach, especially considering all of the uncertainties that are out there, whether it's labor, cost, uh, unpredictable supply chain. I feel like the way that you guys are looking at this is, is great. Um, I had another question on um, slide 16, uh, the FTEs. Mm -hmm. So I heard that you guys don't use, um, or no one made requests for uh, term limit temporary positions. Is that because you guys are relying more on consultants? Where does, does, that, where does that get accounted for? Well, it depends on the department. 
Um, and again, well, I think there is one area where there is a limited duration position in uh, OEDI. And Bukta, you might want to speak to here. And I think that's related to that alliance um, work on the I, my, my question is more so to better understand if you guys, how much of, of the organization is relying on consultants as opposed to temporary staff as a whole. If I might, um, so for engineering, as uh, um, Janice mentioned a little bit earlier, they have uh, some on-site consultants. And uh, also the PCS, you know, uh, we do have uh, some emergency hire, and we just converted a number of those positions this year in 2023 into a permanent position. As um, Marine Maintenance did several years ago, they have some emergency hire, and then, you know, because we've been hiring them for several years, and some of them over 10 years, so we convert them uh, to the regular position. And that's a feel, you know, that we, you know, uh, some emergency hire in the individual base because if a, you know, FTE or regular um, position because of the emergency situation, they could not, you know, come to the port and work. And in some cases, we hire those positions. Um, and then the other ones, uh, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, we do have a, uh, in essential service, have a couple of few uh, limited duration. You know, sometimes we know that some of the work is just, you know, for a few years, so we hire that, including one that uh, for OEDI mm. or to support the Seaport Alliance. So. I see. Got it. Thank you. That That's helpful. I just, it was, I was wondering if the reason that we didn't do it was because we're relying more on consultants. So that's helpful information. Um, and then just quickly, um, the equity spending. I mean, this is phenomenal work. It's work that hasn't been done around the country. Mm -hmm. It's somewhat groundbreaking. There's a lot of organizations that will be using this as an example. The dashboard is public and I look at it and it's it's amazing how it breaks down the numbers and how you can um, play around with the tool to identify numbers. Um, when we first mentioned this, I remember how everybody's eyebrows raised up and you all said, what are we talking about here? And, and I also mentioned around that time, um, participatory budgeting, right? And when we say participatory budgeting, we're not talking about having the public participate in the entire budget of the port, but around the stuff that we're talking about when we talk about equity spending, how do we get the public to be more engaged? And these are one of the ways when people know what we're investing in and where those dollars are going, it actually empowers them to feel like that they can engage with the organization. And so it's, it's amazing to see us put this stuff in action and it to become a part of how we're looking at the budget. And so I wanna commend everyone who was part of that process. And so those are, that concludes thank my you. comments and thank you again. Thank you. All right, thank you very much, gentlemen. I, I would just mention there was a final slide, which I won't oh. cover, but it, it was just the remaining schedule. I think you can read it for yourself. But as I said, divisions will be back in early October present their budgets. We'll have the tax levy and plan of finance at the second meeting of October. Budget document will be released in October and then as we get into November is when the introduction of the, the budget and the final passage will occur. Great. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate it. All right. Clerk Hart, please read the next item into the record. Executive Director Mitchell will then introduce it. Thank you. This is agenda item 11B, Port of Seattle Police Department 2022 annual report. Commissioners, our Port of Seattle Police Department and their performance is an essential part of what makes us successful as an organization in all the many ways that we define success. From keeping our facilities safe and secure to living up to our goals for equity, transparency, and accountability and customer service, we're proud to have a police department 
that is a mission-driven, values-oriented, constantly expanding its approach to new opportunities and challenges. Today you'll hear from uh, Port of Seattle Police Department Chief Via how the, how the SPD is performing on a number of fronts, from, from how we're doing with recruitment and training to the results of our in interactions with the public. We'll also hear how the Police Department is working to meet the recommendations of the Port's Policing Task Force related to equity and civil rights and their ongoing work with the 21CP to conduct that evaluation. So uh, this afternoon we have Chief Michael Villa, Chief of Port of Seattle Police Department, Sean Griffin, Sergeant uh, Sean Griffin, and as well as Commander Lisa Drake. So I think, uh, Chief, I'll turn it over to you. Thanks. Good afternoon, Commission President Cho and Commissioners, Executive Director Metric, and uh, other staff and visitors. I'm really excited to, to give this presentation uh, on the police department just to talk about the, the great work and the great people uh, in our police department. Um, I also wanted to, I, I passed out, I know that there's an online copy of the annual report uh, in your packets. It's also on our website, so anybody can go to our website and um, pull that up as well. Um, just now handed out some hard copies of that. I do want to thank uh, external relations uh, really for working with uh, our team with um, my senior admin assistant Jen Robinson and Commander DePolo for putting together uh, the annual report and hope that you enjoy that as you look through that. Uh, next slide please. <clears throat> so I'm going to give a or we uh, myself and Sergeant Griffin and Commander uh, Drake will give a brief overview of the department. I do want to just say that uh, it'll be briefer than what you've seen in previous uh, the last couple of years because I've talked a lot about the uh, the different units and divisions within the department so I'm still going to hit on the, the two bureaus but that'll be a little briefer I do want to uh, get into our recruitment plan which Sergeant Griffin will talk about um, and also the progress report on the the uh, 21 CP recommendations for the department so again I, I still will talk about that but it'll be a little briefer than what you've seen in the past um, and then we'll share some notable activities during 2022, uh, talk about what we have and are doing with recruitment, um, discuss the policing assessment uh, progress, and then also give a, a look forward. Next slide. So our vision is to be the nation's finest uh, port police. Uh, our mission is in support of the Port of Seattle's mission. And that was a, a phrase that we added to our mission a couple years ago because we really saw that it was important that uh, the mission of the police department really needs to align with the Port of Seattle mission, uh, which is essentially to promote economic opportunities and quality of life. And then as a police department, our part of that, or part of our, you know, what we do to support that is that we fight crime. We're very proactive in addressing crime issues um, and protect and serve our community. And our guiding principles are leadership, integrity, and accountability. Next slide. Uh, these are the primary functions that the police department uh, engages in. Uh, we perform all the traditional uh, law enforcement uh, functions of a municipality, uh, such as uh, traffic enforcement, responding to and investigating uh, thefts or burglaries, assaults or other crimes. Uh, but in addition to that, we also respond, mitigate and resolve issues such as suspicious devices or threatening persons uh, that affect not only public safety on our properties, uh, but also our continuity of, of operations, and so we're a key um, part there. Uh, finally, we train and equip our team members to respond, mitigate, 
and stabilize uh, acts of terrorism or unusual occurrences that, that could occur. That could occur. Uh, please, uh, next slide. Uh, this is primarily here for your reference, but it gives an organizational chart um, of our uh, department. Uh, one thing, that's, that's for 2022. Uh, one thing I will say is that in 2023, we added an additional commander. So uh, next year or next annual report, you'll see that there will actually be four commanders under the Operations Bureau. Next slide. Our Operations Bureau is uh, comprised of the specialized units uh, that you see on this slide. So patrol, maritime, uh, patrol unit, our boat team, uh, dive team, explosive detection, canine, bomb disposal unit, and our traffic support specialist. Uh, these teams all work uh, together to provide layers of security at the airport and the seaport and to just provide that exceptional law enforcement services uh, that we seek to provide. Uh, in 2022, they worked with aviation security uh, and maritime security divisions, uh, TSA, other federal law enforcement partners uh, to keep our properties uh, secure. And I did just want to take a moment to, to thank our, this is the largest portion of our police department. It's our uniformed personnel. Uh, they do a tremendous job. And in 2022, uh, they kept our property safe. Um, and, and you know, one of the reasons that we can sit in this room comfortably and without and just feel safe and secure is because of the work that those men and women are doing uh, in on our properties. So, uh, again, they do a tremendous job, very committed uh, to that security, and I want to thank all of them. Next slide. I will take a little bit more time to uh, talk about the Services Bureau, and part of that is because uh, some of the work that they do really touches on uh, some of the areas that I know uh, the Commission is um, uh, is very interested in. So our Office of Professional Accountability, uh, talking about them just briefly, uh, they report directly to the Chief's Office, and their primary function is to investigate alleged employee misconduct. Uh, they work very closely with HR, with our legal department, and with workplace uh, responsibility. Our Criminal Investigations Division, uh, they investigate crimes, conduct backgrounds, uh, perform drug interdiction, work with our partners on, on human trafficking amongst uh, many other uh, duties and responsibilities. Uh, one of the challenges that we faced over the last few years, and you might recall this as being a bit of a hot topic, is the, the uh, catalytic theft um, or the, the theft of catalytic converters uh, from vehicles. Um, I'm happy to report, not, not happy that we still have those, but in 2022, we saw a significant decrease in uh, these thefts. In 2021, we had over 150 uh, thefts of catalytic converters. In 2022, we had about 40. In 2023, uh, we were at 23 last I checked last week. So we really saw a significant decrease in this. And, and this, did, this isn't just happenstance. This is because of the innovative and investigative work of our patrol, of our detectives working with patrol uh, primarily. Uh, we had a... a an operation with the bait car back at the end of 2021. Uh, we investigated some of these criminal organizations uh, and they just they did a phenomenal job that really impacted the decrease of that sort of theft. So um, so I just I wanted to report out on that. Uh, and again, just it's an example of the great work that they do uh, regarding drug interdiction, which I know has also been a, a topic of, of interest um, in 2022. Uh, we seized drugs totaling 2.9 million in street value. Uh, that were coming through our properties. Um, 100,000 fentanyl, fentanyl pills were part of that 
seizure uh, with a $1.7 million uh, street value that we took off the street because of the work that our drug interdiction team uh, did in 2022. Uh, they also seized $764,000 in cash seizures. Uh, that was drug money, again, that was coming through our properties that they were able to interdict and seize. And so I, I know that our audience watching this is generally not uh, folks who are doing that type of trafficking, but I uh, just want to say that if you're coming through our properties, then you better beware because our dogs will sniff you out and our detectives will do their work and we're going to be seizing more. You know, if that comes through the properties, we'll, we'll continue to do that work. Regarding human trafficking, I want to report out on that. And Commissioner, President Cho just walked out, so uh, hmm, maybe I'll come back to that. <laughs> Let me talk about the Administrative Services Division real quick. So our Administrative Diver uh, Services Division performs various functions as uh, ensuring that we meet the Washington State training requirements, uh, such as de-escalation, crisis uh, uh, intervention, procedural justice. Um, they have a requirement that we, um, that all of our officers receive 24 hours of in-service training. You know, I'm happy to report that, that we exceed that requirement year after year after year. And so the average number of, off of hours that our officers received training in 2022 uh, was 55 hours. And again, that's, that's fairly common for us to do that. Uh, that division, Administrative Services Division, also oversees our CALEA accreditation, the Commission on Accreditation for Law Enforcement Agencies. Um, and they ensure that our policies are in accordance with state and federal um, statutes or, or requirements and that they meet best practices. So I'll jump back to the human trafficking, though. I know that uh, other commissioners have interest in that. Um, we had two human trafficking cases in 2022. Uh, one of those was uh, transitioned to another department as a primary department. Uh, another one was someone who was coming here to the airport to meet an underage um, female. And instead, they met her detectives. And so that person was taken into custody. Um, again, anyone who's thinking about doing that and coming here, uh, beware, because they may end up meeting our, one of our detectives or our detectives instead and going to jail. Um, we, there were two other reports that we had in 2022 uh, that turned out to be unfounded. Uh, the good part of that is that what that means is that people are calling us because they see something that is suspicious, doesn't look right, um, and they're thinking, hey, maybe this is human trafficking, so they're calling us. And again, I would just encourage anyone, if you see something that does not look right and, and there's something going on, you don't need to know what exactly it is. Just call. Just call 911, report it. Our officers will respond. We'll do the investigation, and, and we'll determine if there's a crime that's being committed or about to be committed or has been committed. So anyway. And then our 911 police and fire communications, uh, communications critical uh, for our operations. They do a, a fabulous job. and just appreciate the work that they've done uh, 2022 and continue to do for us. Next slide. And speaking about now on communication, so this slide gives uh, the statistics as far as the calls uh, for service, calls received. Uh, one thing I will point out is um, when you're going through the, uh, the annual report, uh, you will see a page where it talks about calls for service. Note that that's for patrol. So these numbers here, are they, they include police and fire. So calls for service for police and fire, that's that total number of 90,000, a little bit of a decrease, about 10% between 2021 and 2022, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, calls received are those calls that are actually coming into the dispatch center. Calls for service, they include uh, officers calling out on a suspicious subject or whatever it might be. So calls received, uh, that's where you see that number, and there was a slight increase in that between 
2021 and 2022. And then broken out on that slide is the total fire and medical calls as opposed to uh, calls for police. If we go to the next slide. So on this one here, it takes those calls for service and, and it shows um, essentially the groupings of what those calls were. And uh, one thing to note on this is that you'll see that 57% of the calls for service were area checks. So that's officers that are checking particular areas. It might be the, the parking garage, it might be the rental car facility, uh, might be properties down in the seaport. They're calling out that they're doing area checks of those. So that's what, what that is. Um, of those calls for service, 65% of total calls for service are officer initiated. And so that could be that the, the area checks, it might be a emphasis that our canine uh, teams are conducting uh, throughout the year in 2022, for instance, our canine teams conducted about 3,900 uh, emphasis patrols uh, where they, they would go out with their canines are not necessarily deployed on a call, but they're out in the airport uh, doing that emphasis patrol. And then I'd also just like to note, it's not on the slide, but uh, you know, TSA, we, the police department, um, we have to work within regulations of TSA. And, and one of the regulations is that uh, we are able to respond to checkpoints within five minutes. So that's one of the other responsibilities and duties of our officers is responding to those checkpoints. And that's what encompasses some of those calls as well. All right, next slide. So notable activity, the, the, the first three I'm gonna touch on a little bit later as we go through the presentation. So I'm not gonna make any comments about those uh, right now, but do, do just wanna um, call out that we had some notable uh, things, events that occurred during 2022. Uh, the first was a POTUS visit, President Biden uh, coming through the airport. Uh, our staff had very short notice of his arrival to the airport. Um, this is not a usual event that we have. Uh, De Deputy Chief uh, Gillibo uh, and our team worked really just in a phenomenal way to in very short amount of time uh, make sure that we had a good plan working with Secret Service and our other partners uh, to ensure that there was a safe arrival and safe departure without any incidents uh, for the president. So that was a good event for us. Uh, the other one is the appointment of a new police chief. Um, I was um, honored and uh, it really just is, I feel very fortunate that in August of 2022, uh, Director Metric um, appointed me as uh, the next police chief. And so, again, thank you, sir, for that. And, and commissioners, I appreciate the support that you've given to me as, as the police chief. And it really does make my job a lot easier. And anyway, so um, feel very fortunate for that. Uh, 2022 was also our 50-year anniversary. So we had a, a wonderful celebration. Over 100 people attended. Uh, 30 uh, retirees came back uh, for that celebration. Uh, Director Metric, Commissioner Hazegao, I appreciate you guys attending and, and the comments that you made uh, during that 50-year uh, anniversary. And it really, it really was a, a great celebration to see how the department has evolved over those 50 years. And then, uh, and then with the retirees coming back too, just a reminder of so many people that have contributed to where the department is today. And then the final thing, um, was the loss of Officer John McCarthy. Uh, Officer John McCarthy died on May 31st of 2022. He, it was uh, while he was off duty, uh, but very tragic. Uh, he was a uh, uh, U.S. Uh, military veteran, had also been with the department um, between 2006 and 2022. And really, you know, it, it was really hard for the department to, to go through that loss. It was unexpected. 
Uh, and there are officers who, you know, really I think even to this day are still uh, grieving his his loss. And so um, there will be, you will notice in the annual report towards, it's not the last page, but uh, there is also just a, a note, um, um, a little tribute to him there as far as, as that goes. Next, next page. So now I'd like to talk briefly about uh, our ongoing efforts to response to persons in crisis or persons experiencing homelessness. And, and I think if you, if you take a step back and look at the way that our department has responded to this, um, and not just Michelle Briegel and uh, Victoria um, Rositsova, but uh, our staff working with them, it, it really does, it, it's a... Uh, it's a demonstration of, of us living by our guiding principles and really the Port of Seattle's core values as well. When you consider and you look at the way that we've responded to this over the last few years, um, this team has engaged with airport stakeholders, uh, airlines, collaborated with uh, service um, partners such as uh, King County Veterans Program, Recovery Navigator Program, uh, Law Enforcement Assisted Diversion or the LEAD Program, uh, the mobile crisis team. Uh, they worked with uh, Berrien Police Department and they'll work with other departments as well, but during 2022, uh, they contact encampments on port properties and shared uh, jurisdictions. And they really are seeking and trying to determine how do we best um, help people who are experiencing homelessness or who are in crisis uh, so that we can help them get out of the situation that they're in. And so it's, it's you just, you see such compassion in uh, our team as they're trying to uh, make these efforts. Um, the, the team also provided uh, all staff in-service training for uh, many of our um, airline uh, airport staff um, and then new hire training as well as new hires are coming in they're giving them some training and some of that training for the uh, staff was uh, how to de-escalate and, and what should they what should a non-law enforcement person do if they have to de-escalate a situation or try to back away from a situation if, if it seems like things are um, maybe becoming hostile. Uh, Victoria was hired in November, December of 2022. Um, and you'll notice also in the annual report that we've got a uh, employee spotlight on her in that report. Um, that's one of the things I would encourage uh, folks to do is if you go in there and look at their look at our report is there are several employee spotlights and it really just uh, shows uh, some of the people who are working for the police department. So I'd encourage uh, folks to go in there and take a look at that if, if they have time. Uh, you can see the stats on this slide as far as the work that this team has done. Now, those are stats since January of 2022 of the work that they've done. And a couple things to note there. One is just that if you look at that number, 115 encounters with homeless individuals, 110 accepted services or referrals uh, when we made those contacts. The, the uh, designated crisis responder referrals, DCRs, uh, what that is is that that's if our officers or our staff uh, are in contact with someone and um, it's determined by mental health professionals that, you know, this person really needs to be evaluated, they, they need assistance, and so um, there is a requirement that they would then go um, be evaluated, and I believe it's uh, five days still, but they would basically stay for five days while they're being evaluated, receiving services and treatment. So we had 12 of those during the course of that, uh, of 2022. Next slide. 
So I'm going to, um, in a moment, I'll turn this over to Sergeant Griffin, but just want to say uh, regarding this, he's going to talk about our recruitment uh, plan and, and what we have done. Um, you know, the, really the last few years, of, there have been some real challenges when it comes to uh, retention and, and recruitment. And I really appreciate um, and just want to call out uh, working with uh, Katie Gerard and her team with HR, um, town acquisition representative uh, Candy Lorenzo that they ended up uh, hiring um, and bringing on and assigning to the police department uh, to really help us with oral boards and with the process to, to be able to um, interview more people. Um, I also appreciate the tremendous work that uh, Sergeant uh, Griffin and his team uh, did. We ended up standing up, a, and he'll talk more about this, so I don't want to steal your thunder. But um, he, he uh, took lead, and we stood up a recruitment cadre uh, with um, officers that have just been doing a tremendous job of reaching out, going out to the community, and, and doing some um, outstanding recruitment. And so um, Sergeant Griffin, I know, is, is here and presenting. I think uh, Officer Nari Shin is in the audience. Um, but I'll just call out some other um, cadre members, uh, Sergeant Mike Noxiacum, uh, Sergeant Tony Kalahui, Officer Nick Blevins, Detective Ashley Lamb, Officer Nick King, and, and really a whole host of other officers that this cadre has recruited to help them uh, with these recruitment uh, efforts. So with that, uh, turn it over to you, Sergeant Griffin, and you can take us through the next part of the presentation. Good afternoon. Again, my name is Sean Griffin. I'm a sergeant with the police department, and I'm part of our recruiting team. Um, as the chief said, uh, we don't have anyone solely dedicated to recruiting, so it's been a, a complete team effort. And he mentioned some of the people involved. Um, a couple other officers are Officer Sele and uh, Officer Citron as well are part of that team. So again, I just want to reiterate that, you know, due to their efforts is the reason we <laughs> have some success this year. And it's been a complete team effort, not only with the recruiting team, but department-wide. And I'll go into that a little bit more. Next slide, please. Okay, so what we want to do in recruiting is uh, we want to meet potential candidates where they are through the attendance at recruiting events. Uh, I'll talk more about some of those events later on. Um, we want to discover potential candidates through outreach strategies. And we've done this by both uh, recruiting and community events. Well, we've conducted 120 ride-alongs as well. And what a ride-along is, if you're not familiar with it, it's basically like it sounds. Someone comes and they ride along with us and they get to learn about our department and we also get to learn a little bit about them. So they can see what we have to offer, see what we're about, and see if it's a good fit for them and, and we can see if you know, it's something that they might want to pursue. Uh, we also want to tell our story about why our police department is a professionally and personally rewarding place to make a difference. Um, we want to put it out there why our agency is unique uh, we're a lot different than a, a lot of other agencies, and so we get an opportunity to tell that story and have people come to us, and if it's a good fit for them, then we can recruit those people. So that's a, one of the things we want to do with our recruiting efforts as well. Uh, we want to increase our uh, competitive edge to retain and recruit candidates, and some of the things we have that are an advantage that we see, uh, it's our unique environment again. It's an environment unlike any other. It's, un it's unlike a city or a county or anything like that, so that's one of the advantages we have. Also, our work-life balance, our department stresses a good work-life balance, and so that's another one of the advantages that we have in our department, and also, of course, our benefits that are provided. Next slide, please. So we partner in our recruitment efforts, and uh, as the chief mentioned, we partner with Human Resources to create a dedicated talent acquisition focus, and Ms. Candy Lorenzo, 
she's filled that role and partners with us uh, in recruiting. Uh, she's had a, uh, been a huge asset for our recruiting efforts. She's went through thousands of emails, hundreds of text messages, and dozens of phone calls. Uh, and her, she's done that in order to streamline our process and make us more efficient. Uh, her experience coupled with the, with the efforts of our recruiting team has been uh, successful this year. Uh, additionally, she's also been instrumental in our effort to reach out to the Latino community. In her short time here, she's already made those connections and helped, uh, helped us make those connections as, as well and build those relationships. Next slide, please. Okay, some of the things that we've done in our recruiting efforts is we attend the public safety testing events. And what public safety testing is, it's the testing company that we use uh, for the initial testing process for our entry levels. So what we do is we'll go there and there'll be other agencies there as well and we have an opportunity to talk to the candidates, tell them about our agency, basically you know sell them on what we have to offer. So we're competing with everybody else that's there. So we've been doing a lot of that and through those efforts we've been able to sign up 264 candidates and signing those people up means they put us on, our li on their list and then if they score high enough then they can move on to oral boards. So that effort has produced a lot of um, entry-level candidates for us. Uh, again, we've been to general recruitment events, and these are general like career fairs and things of that nature. They're not things specifically focused towards law, law enforcement. We've been to nine of those events. We went to three local college events, one of those being Central Washington University. We went out there to their event. We've done two local high school events, and we continue our military recruitment. Um, we've done six events, and we do a weekly JBL, JBLM informational meeting, and what that is, it's a for the soldiers transitioning out of the military within a year or so. So that's a weekly meeting that we attend and we can tell them what we have to offer as a police department, some of the benefits. But additionally, we're able to reach out um, to family and spouses because they're getting out and they may have you know, spouses that are looking for work too. So we can tell them about what the Port in General has to offer. And going to the military, it's, it's twofold. The people in the military, um, they kind of know our structure you know, the, the command structure and things of that nature. Also, they have some of the attributes that we may be looking for, such as a desire to serve. And it also helps us in our diversity recruitment. The United States military is one of the most diverse, if not the most diverse entities within the country. And it's concentrated at JBLM and the other places we go. So that helps us with our diversity recruitment as well. We've continued to do a community outreach. We've done six events, uh, actually seven. I think we did one recently. Um, those events were the Latino Civic Alliance. That was in Burien. It was a career fair. And these events we've coupled with the uh, Port of Seattle in general and participated in that. We have uh, went to the Seamar Fiestas uh, Patrias Parade last week. That was pretty fun. Um, we had the CID celebration in the International District. We had a presence at the Alaska Airlines Aviation Day, National Night Out at Shoshone Bay Marina, and also we were at Fleet Week. Next slide, please. For our lateral recruiting, um, this is a big thing for us. Our department has a high percentage of lateral officers, myself included. So uh, what helps us is that, like I said before, it's been a total team effort, the whole department. So when we have officers here from other agencies, they help in our recruiting. They you know, talk about our agency, what a great agency is, and that helps in our lateral recruiting. We want to keep on using notes, networks, and the officers that we have here in order to continue our lateral recruiting efforts. Next slide, please. All right, so some of the results that we've had, since February, we've had 217 oral board interviews. That's 217 people that we've actually interviewed. 
uh, and we scheduled those every two weeks. Initially, we were doing them, we did them for two weeks straight, but now we're doing about every two weeks. Sometimes we'll throw additional um, interviews in there if we get good candidates and we want to try to get them and not lose them. So we're doing a lot of those oral board interviews now. Uh, we partner with the employee resource groups uh, to include the diverse perspectives of non-swarm personnel. And that's been beneficial for us because we get to hear outside perspectives. I think it's also been beneficial for the ERG members as well. They get to see what we're looking for, some of the questions we ask, and the process that we go through in order to hire the highest quality candidates we can. We can. And also, we've updated the civil service rules to make things more streamlined. So that would help us um, grab those candidates that we want in a shorter amount of time. And Candy Lorenzo has been a big part of that. Next slide, please. So we have 405 applicants on the PST list. So those are people that have tested with the PST, like I mentioned before, and they've successfully passed the written physical exam. So 45 active candidates on the entry officer civil service list, and those are people that have to take the test. Then we have 35 active candidates on the lateral officer civil service list. And if you look at that chart there, you see the biggest portion is um, people that weren't hired. We have one pending lateral, two entries, and nine laterals. That chart shows the effort and work that the recruiting team, the background investigators, and everyone involved has to put in just to hire you know, two entries and nine laterals at this point. So it's a, it's a lot of work, but we want to do that work in order to get the highest quality candidates that we can. Next slide, please. So our goal is to recruit a diverse uh, police force. And the reason for that is that we recognize that it makes us stronger, it makes us better, and it adds value. Um, quick story, a couple weeks ago I was conducting a briefing, and um, one of the members in the briefing I learned spoke German, and, which I didn't realize. So I asked in the room, who else speaks another language other than English? There were five different languages spoken just in that briefing. We had German, Spanish, Swahili, Arabic, and American Sign Language. And I think that shows how having a diverse workforce brings value to the department. So what we've done to continue that is we continue to partner with the ERG groups. Uh, the ERG groups have been our biggest resources here at the department. They're the ones that have the connections already, and they can help us to make those connections. They have the, um, the event we uh, attended in Berrien. That was through um, Latinos Unidos connected us with that. Uh, we want to continue to partner with community organizations and build those relationships and trust and, and get our story out there. Um, we want to attend community events. And these community events may not so much be recruiting, but we want to be there. And those three things, the reason for that is that we want to establish trust and relationships before we start asking communities to give us our sons and daughters for a dangerous job. We, want to continue to utilize our current officer contacts and networking because, again, the officers already at the department are our best resources to recruit new, new officers for us. And learn from others that have been successful in the recruiting effort for diversity and education, be that conferences or seminars or whatever we can do in order to, to improve our efforts there. Next slide, please. So what we want to do in the future and continue to do is uh, enhance our online presence and social media. We're kind of lacking in that right now. We need to enhance that and because, as we know, most people get most of their information online. So we want to improve that and have that stand out and be one of our re recruiting tools. Right now, it's, it's pretty, uh, we're doing a lot of manual labor for it, so we want to get a little help with technology. Uh, continue attending the PST events and job fairs and military hiring events. That's what we've done thus far. 
and uh, we've had some results from that. We want to expand our area of recruitment efforts to reach diverse communities. So we've talked about going to eastern Washington and maybe even going to some other states where the diversity might, may be even greater than what we have here in the Puget Sound. <coughs> we want to start producing our media in Spanish and additional languages. Uh, on our website and our brochures we give out and other uh, information that we have, we want to have that in additional languages. It'll help broaden our pool as well as increase our diversity pool. Again, com continue community outreach because we still want to build that trust and build those relationships. And another thing is the, develop our department brand, our brand as the Port of Seattle Police Department. Um, a lot of sometimes when we will talk to people, they don't know we have a police department or they don't know what we do. So we want to get that brand developed. There was a, a story, it was on the news, they were talking about this agency over and over and then they showed our recruiting vehicle. And we want to make sure that our brand is out there and when we talk about the Port of Seattle Police Department, they know who we are, what we have to offer, and why this is a, a great agency to work for. Any questions? Just a quick question. Yes, uh, I really appreciate the, the slide on candidates in the process and the comment you made about uh, the work you do to essentially vet folks coming in. Um, you know, I, I know that uh, Chief Via has talked a lot about the culture of the department here at the Port of Seattle Police Department and how we can really distinguish ourselves from um, every other department, really want to be the, the finest port police in the nation. And I think that really begins with recruiting candidates. Because we bring so many lateral hires in, I want to make sure that we're recruiting lateral hires that share that sense of, of the kind of culture that we're cultivating here. So maybe you could speak to what does that vetting look like to make sure that we're uh, bringing in the type of people who reflect the culture that we want in our department? Yeah, I'll, I'll just say that um, you know when, when officers get into our background process, well, first of all, I mean, you are absolutely right. You know, in order for us to have the department that we want to have, we have to hire and bring in the right people. And so one of the things that we look for is do they share the values of the port? Do they share our guiding principles before bringing them into the force? And, and so there is that vetting process during the oral board that um, Sergeant Griffin and, and others who are on our recruitment team or ERG uh, members are seeking to do some of that, that vetting. Uh, once they, they, if they pass that and they get into our background though, only 25% of, um, and for laterals a little bit higher, it's about 30% of laterals who get into our background come out of the background. And so we, we are doing a very thorough background. And, and one of the things that's, that's I like about lateral officers is that they've been an officer somewhere. And so we can go back and look at their performance evaluations. We can look at the type of work that they did. We can, you know, we can validate to some degree that, you know, this is an officer who has conducted and performed as an officer with the same values that we have before bringing them in. And, and once they go through that process, and are, um, then there's an executive summary that goes to uh, Deputy Chief Thomas, who will do that initial executive summary, um, and then I'll and uh, he'll, he'll review uh, what's in that person's background. Uh, and then they come to a chief's interview. So we have another opportunity to interview those candidates. And again, really trying to make sure that they, they're going to be a good fit for us um, at the Port of Seattle. Just to share, I mean, one example where uh, a lateral candidate, I was talking to the, the officer. Um, I won't say where he is from. But as we were talking, um, in, in my opinion, there, there could have he may not have been the best fit. and so. Um, I just told him that. I said, I don't know if you're going to be the best fit. Here's the reasons why. 
Um, I want you to think about if you think you're a good fit to come here because this is the type of officer that we're looking for. Um, and initially he accepted the, the job and we, okay, they still have some other, there's uh, additional tests that they have to go at even after that point. Uh, but then that officer called back and said, yeah, I don't think I'm a good fit. And so, um, so we have those tough conversations as well um, and really trying to vet those, those candidates. But thank you for that question. And I would add to that um, kind of what I spoke about with our the whole department of the recruiting team but those lateral officers are already here they know you know what we do here and they can you know advise that person or us that they would be a good fit if it's somewhere they should even look at and as the chief said even before it gets to his level our recruiters they'll talk to people and we've told them this is probably not a good fit for you you know if you're if you're looking for what i call it the tv stuff if you're looking for the tv stuff this may not be a good fit for you here but we do that early in the process Thank you. Chief, yeah, go ahead. Oh, yeah. Yep, go ahead. Just as a follow-up question to that line of questioning, um, so I'm hearing you say that there are multiple points, particularly at the um, point of initial contact with a potential recruit for you to use discretion, right, and say, yeah, this probably isn't going to be a good fit for you. What I'm wondering is formally throughout the actual application process, you met them, they seem like they share our values, and now they're actually applying for the position. Um, I see here on slide 18 that they successfully passed a written and physical exam. I'm hearing you say, Chief, that there also has to be a very robust background screening, which I assume also includes commendations or complaints. Um, but, you know, is there, if uh, you're targeting former military folks, is there some sort of a mental health screening that you're conducting um, as just standardized practice. I'm wondering about if there's any preference in your evaluation for folks who bring diverse lived experiences or speak multiple languages. I know you say you informally assess the room and can say, oh, there were five hands in the air, but how does that give them an edge in the application process? Um, their education, right, that they bring a variety of professional experiences, perhaps in mental health, for example, um, that would be a great benefit to the department. Um, I'm also wondering at what point do they have to sit down and interview for the position? And is there standardized practice for when people can expect to be able to ask questions or receive updates? And from the moment of initial contact to, well, no, from the moment of when they've decided they want to apply for the department, about how long until that process typically is completed for onboarding for I, a successful I can, candidate? I can answer about the, uh, the initial questions you asked. During the oral board interview, there is a question. It asks about knowledge, skills, and ability. And knowledge, skills, and ability in any other languages that you speak. So that's asked in the oral board question. Okay. Um, as far as I, I think you asked about uh, psychological testing, mm -hmm. that is something that's part of the process. That's one of the, the tests within the process. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, with the, the oral board, the, some of those questions cover those like uh, education and skills that you bring. So that's the opportunity for them to let us know what they have and what they bring to the department. And during the oral board, the oral board is a scored process. So they, okay. they'll have a higher score with, you know, if they speak another language, if they have skills that they get. And they don't have to be specific police skills, but if they can relate the skills they have to right. how to benefit them in police work, then they'll score higher on it. 
Right. Okay. Did that's that it answer for that, for that line of questioning, okay. yeah. All right. Commissioner Mahoney, no? All right. All right. Continue. So I just want to thank you also, uh, Sergeant Griffin. I mean, when we, when we initiated that cadre, he volunteered to take the lead on it and to really kind of put that cadre together as well as some of the other officers. And uh, it takes a lot of time and commitment. So just for example, um, Sergeant Griffin, not to, not to call you out, but he worked last night on graveyard. Uh, he came in today because he's just he's passionate about this topic, and uh, he could have he could have delegated that to someone else to give the presentation. Uh, he put this presentation together. Um, I saw him Saturday at the uh, at the parade um, because he's out trying to recruit, and then he's got to work again tonight. But that's our recruiters. They they are stepping up. They are all in, and they're just doing an, an outstanding job. So uh, thank you to you and, and to that uh, recruitment cadre. But with that, want to. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, with that, I want to pass it off now to Commander Lisa Drake to talk about the progress with the uh, task force policing assessment. Uh, I do want to um, just even take this opportunity, though, to to thank the commission. Um, you know, Commissioner uh, Calkins was one of the original um, chairs of uh, the uh, task force on policing and civil rights. Um, also, just want to thank uh, Book de Geyser and um, also uh, Delmas uh, Whitaker. Uh, and there was 50 internal and external stakeholders that participated in the task force uh, once that uh, task force was stood up. Uh, and so a lot of, of effort and energy has gone into this uh, really since 2020 when it was initially uh, initialized by the, uh, by the commission. But with that, um, so, so Commander Drake, she... Uh, she was, uh, she has, or is our lead person as far as ensuring that uh, now the recommendations are implemented and works with Deputy Chief uh, Thomas. And so with that, I wanted to turn it over to her to uh, go over the next few slides. Good afternoon, Commissioners and Executive Director Metric. Commander Lisa Drake here to report on behalf of the Task Force Policing Assessment. I'm going to start going through a timeline. Um, first, as, as I go through this, um, as you all are aware, the Port of Seattle Commission directed a comprehensive assessment of the police department to ensure alignment with the highest national standards and best practicing in policing in July of 2020. 21 CP was awarded that contract, and the, as Chief Bia mentioned, the Task Force on Policing was created with over 50 internal and external stakeholders. Uh, the assessment report was completed by September of 2021 and presented and included in that report was 52 recommendations for the police department to implement. Next slide, please. Shortly after the September 2021 report was presented, the police assessment implement implementation team or PATE team was created. That is a mouthful. Um, led by strategic and was led by strategic initiatives and a huge thank you to Marin Burnett and her team because she was phenomenal in facilitating this team. I enjoyed working with her so much and it really helped benefit this process. Um, the, the team consisted of several different members that consisted of members from workplace responsibility, human resources, labor, legal, uh, finance and budget, police department and OE, OEDI, and also labor. The, the team looked 
at reviewing the recommendations as far as looking for port policy implications, police policy implications, community external relations implications, legal implications, budget implications, any other implications we could identify. And then at the end of April 2022, the report was complete and turned over to the police department so that we could take lead in doing the re implementing the recommendations. So shortly after April 2022, the police department began gathering documents, gathering data so that we could show that we were compl complying and showing successful implementation of the recommendations. We needed a way to show what is this going to look like to see that these recommendations have been successfully implemented. It's one thing for us to show, say it, but how does, what does that really look like? And in June of 2023, 21CP was awarded a contract for four years um, by commission to do the yearly reviews of the implementation efforts. Next slide, please. So in July of 2023, uh, the police department provided individual documentation packets on 20 recommendations. And they, this was submitted to 21CP for review of compliance with these recommendations. Not only did 21CP review the 20 individual documentation packets presented to them, but they also did additional interviews with subject matter experts to answer questions, ask questions, and verify compliance. We received the report back from 21CP and 19 of those 20 recommendations were verified by 21CP is implemented. Um, just a couple of examples um, to provide you. Um, recommendation number six um, was the first responder alternative for homelessness response. Um, that was um, proven to be successfully implemented. It was a high priority for us. I know uh, Chief Via had shared some stats. Um, the stats that we had provided were from May of 2021 to April of 2023. And I share this with you because I think it's pretty impressive with the team, the crisis coordinator team, which is um, one officer that we identified to work in the crisis coordinator role, and then also the full-time mental health professional that we, that we hired. Between May of 2021 and April of 2023, they had 494 documented encounters. 239 of those encounters encounters involved homelessness. 204 of those 239 encounters were re resolved without arrest. They either referred um, an individual to for services, transportation to a hospital, or a crisis diversion facility, which is pretty impressive that they were able to provide so much help to so many people. Recommendation number 10, also a high priority was a de-escalation policy updates as also mandated by Washington State Legislator. Um, in reviewing our critical decision-making policy, our alternative tactics de-escalation policy, reviewing our CALEA accreditation um, proof required, and then also reports documented by officers that documented the tactics used showing de-escalation, 21CP found us to be in compliance with that recommendation as well. So. It, it, it's uh, um, with how important these recommendations are, it's, it's nice to see that we're providing those proofs and those documentations to show they're being implemented. 
Finally, our next steps, um, we just had that first review with the 19 successful implemented recommendations. Our next review will be quarter one of 2024. And then subsequent reviews will be quarter two, 2025 and quarter two, 2026, where we, the goal is to be 100% compliant in all those recommendations that were implemented. And with that, I'll turn it back over to Chief B. Yeah, so you can go to the next slide. And also just on that, that note, 21CP uh, is more than happy. It's actually in their scope of work uh, that if the commissioners would like, uh, they can come and give a, a fuller presentation on uh, the implementation progress. And they could do that um, this year or next year, as uh, Commander Drake mentioned, they're going to do their next review in quarter one. And so quarter two of next year might be a good time uh, for them to come back and give a, a fuller presentation. And then you also have um, the, uh, the progress report will also be posted on uh, our website. Um, it may be there right now, I don't recall. But by the end of this week, it'll be posted on our website as well uh, for, for others to view. And that's part of the, you know, one of the recommendations, uh, one of the three areas that 21CP uh, uh, talked about as kind of um, um, significant areas was that the police department be more transparent. And so that's one of the things that we've done is use a force report and our annual report given this presentation, uh, but posting things like that so that the public and our stakeholders can, can see for themselves, you know, this is the progress that the police department has made. And then I'd also like to say just before leaving this, this uh, topic that uh, Commander Drake has just done a phenomenal job. Um, it has been a lot to coordinate and take all of those 52 recommendations. Some of those aren't just our department, but also other departments within the port and so that communication to those other departments of, you know, who's going to be assigned to this and how do, how do we work together to make sure that these recommendations are completed. Um, she's done a phenomenal job with, um, with the command team and frequent reminders to us and notices, hey, you owe me this because we have to show that we're actually meeting this uh, recommendation or fulfilling this requirement. And so I just want to um, just say to you, Lisa, I really appreciate the work that you've done as far as uh, keeping us on track with this. And, Anyways, it's been tremendous, so thanks. And again, Commissioner Calkins, uh, you had stepped out of the room just for that moment, but I do appreciate you were the one of the original chairs uh, when the task force, um, when that uh, resolution came out of commission. And it's, it's been really good for the department. I mean, it's, it's been three years, but for us to have uh, that independent evaluator come in, look at the department, look at all these areas, uh, within the department give us recommendations that we can then implement within the department um, it really has been good and it's made us a better department so appreciate your your work uh, on the task force also well i think we have one more slide um, just kind of a look looking forward so uh, what i'd like to do here is uh, just do a, a a flyover of the police department um, strategy moving forward oh you guys didn't have to leave um, there might be questions for you later, Lisa. But okay. <laughs> um, but to do do a flyover of uh, our strategy moving forward, and the department has been been working on a strategic plan over the last uh, really many months, and uh, the plan took into account the task force recommendations that we just talked about, um, existing crime prevention strategies uh, for the department, our response to homelessness. Uh, a 2022 uh, SWAT, uh, equity SWAT that we did within the department and talking to a lot of our staff, the engagement surveys, 
uh, the service level agreements that we've worked out with aviation and maritime leadership as far as what expectations do they have, what services do they want to receive from the police department. Um, in developing the plan uh, this last year at the end of 21 and beginning of 22, uh, we brought a consultant in and we had four full days of a leadership retreat both with the command team and then also with operations in our services bureau and that fed into what our strategy should be going forward. Um, then we asked strategic initiatives and uh, a shout out to Marin, uh, Senior Manager Marin Burnett and Mary Van Biber. Uh, they came in and facilitated four half days um, with our leadership team. So again, the command team um, as well as our supervisory group uh, to then really kind of hone in and help us to develop uh, a strategic plan. The, the, the five uh, bullet points that you have up here uh, this is what the strategic plan intends to accomplish over the next three years. So it's a, a three-year plan. Uh, the first one just being that we would exceed expected service levels. And um, that, that entails revisiting and reassessing the service level agreements that we have uh, with our business partners. Um, but we don't want to just meet those service levels. We really want to be an organization that is consistently, day-to-day, -day exceeding those expectations. So that might have to do with uh, crime prevention, continuity of operations, the flow of traffic on um, the airport drives, our response time, the security and visibility that we're, uh, we're providing and customer service, for instance. Regarding building a strong organizational health and cohesion, you know, in order for us to be a, a high-performing organization or any high-performing organization, you need to take care of your people. And so a big, uh, there's several goals within our strategic plan that address and talk about how do we, how do we take care of our people and make sure that um, we have a healthy organization, uh, but that we're all moving in the same direction as well. And there's cohesion between uh, the police department, the Port of Seattle goals, and then within the police department as well. So uh, for example, one, one goal uh, talks about communication and making sure that we've got a good feedback loop, not even feedback loop, but just that we're inclusive of our employees and we're getting their input as far as how do we accomplish the goals uh, that we have. Maintaining a high level of anti-terrorism capabilities. Uh, we are currently in the phase of completing a, a SWAT, a strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats analysis in this area. And we're in the early stages of standing up a Homeland Security unit. Um, let, let me be, um, and I want to be clear on this, is that we have uh, excellent resources. We've got excellent teams and expertise uh, within the Port of Seattle. So we have a bomb unit, we have a canine unit, explosive detection canine. Our people do a great job. Uh, but our goal is to ensure that we are performing and able to perform uh, at the highest level. And so it really was important um, for me and for our staff to say, hey, we need to assess where we're at. What is our inventory? Where, do we have any gaps? How do we become better and improve? And then also to set up a, a, a unit that um, where we can sustain that approach of making sure that we are protecting our properties. Regarding the uh, ensuring exceptional resources, uh, there's goals in the strategic plan um, that uh, really address and look at, are we providing the right equipment, the right uh, tools? Do we, what is our, do we have the best technology? I mean, even as uh, Sergeant Griffin was talking about, do we have the best technology that we can have in the department to really support our people. 
Um, and facilities, taking a look at facilities. Uh, one of the, uh, the goals is that we will do a facilities assessment uh, within the police department, working with other port staff, um, and then engage in that long-term planning. Do we have the, uh, do we have the, uh, will we have the facilities in five years, 10 years that we need uh, to support our staff and our operations? And then the final um, um, bullet point up there, to model, model legitimate and trusted law enforcement. Um, you know, this final strategy relates to the 21 CP uh, recommendations. It really goes back to that. And, and I just want to emphasize here that, you know, our goal in this and even going through and, and this implementation plan and 21 CP coming in and validate it, for us, it's not to check a box, but, it, but it's really to be a model agency of uh, this, is, this is an agency that has community trust and that is legitimate and has legitimacy. And so this is going to help us to continue to, to, um, to move in that direction, to improve in that direction. Uh, but again, it's, that's, we want to model that within other agencies. And so the, the 20 or so goals that are in our strategic plan, um, all of those touch on these areas um, and, and the intent is to accomplish uh, these areas. And also, just in saying that, I know you don't have that in your packet. Um, it wasn't necessarily intended to be there, but I am happy to get copies of that strategic plan to the commissioners uh, within the next week or so. Um, it is, while it's a three-year plan, I do want to emphasize that it is a living document and it remains flexible to change with the, the months or years ahead as we need to make those changes. So you can go to the, the next slide. Um, so before taking questions, I do want to just notate that in your slide deck, there is some appendices that talk about uh, use of force and demographics. Um, certainly happy to answer questions on that or anything that you've seen in the slide. I wanted to, to include those uh, for your purview. Our, our use of force report was published back in April of this last year, and that has been on the website. And so that document goes into a lot more details as far as use of force goes. Um, and uh, and so that's there for anybody to look at on the website. And with that, I'll ask if there's any questions for myself or any of the other presenters. Awesome. Thank you so much, Chief Via. I'll open it up to questions and comments from Commissioner. So we'll start with Commissioner Hazagawa. Well, thank you for that very robust presentation, Chief Via. I'm going to do my best to um, get through all my questions. Can you do me a favor and just keep the answers as concise as possible? because I want to make sure that we're doing this in a timely fashion. Sure. Okay. So first and foremost, um, uh, I'm wondering if you have a section summarizing the Seattle's finest hired officers. How many folks from other, la other departments have come in and um, provided their professional service to us based on a contract? Yeah, I don't, I don't have a section in the annual report on that, but I can certainly get you any information you want for the yeah. commission on that. Okay, and then we did approve funding for that for a finite time period, and so I think that the next annual report should include information about that because they are providing professional services to us um, for our purposes. And I'm just wondering, what is fully staffed for POSPD? Yes, yeah, so our, our full, our authorized uh, staffing is 130 uh, for commissioned officers. We are presently at 108 um, officers. And so that is what fully staff would be uh, this year. And then how is our progress towards making, um, meeting our, our needs? Well, great. I mean, since uh, July of this year, we've hired nine officers that we brought them into the department. And so that's what the work that the recruitment team has been doing. And really, 
we have um, we've really turned a corner on that. And again, I think it has to do with our officers and the work that they're doing. So we're making good stat, good progress. Our goal is that by the end of 2024, we will be fully staffed. Okay. And then um, for the DCRs, I heard you say that um, that they were dispatched. These are um, the mental health professionals uh, that they were dispatched to SEA on 12 occasions in 2022. How many CARES officers do we have? CARES officers are the DCRs. are the the folks who are at the ones that are that are working to intercept people in crisis. Yes, yeah, so we have, so for the police department, we have our crisis coordinator, which is Michelle Briegel, right. and then Victoria Rositsova. Um, as far as DCRs, we don't have any DCRs right. here. They only work through King County. Yeah. Um, and then we have other officers who are trained as far as they've gone through, uh, many that have gone through the 40-hour training as far as uh, doing that crisis coordination work. I'm not sure if I'm answering your question. So, uh, yeah, that it was a confusing question. So, uh, how is 12 occasions an uptick from years prior? Oh, I see what you're saying. Um, well, yeah, let me clarify, too. That's 12 DCRs total, not just from the airport. So, I believe some of those were from the airport, okay. but they could also be from an encampment. They could be from somewhere on the seaport. Um, 12, um, I don't believe that's necessarily – I'd have to go back and, and check, but that's not a number that when I saw it, uh, look like it deviated a lot from prior years okay um so i'm also seeing um for our um it said 2.9 million dollars um worth of drugs were intercepted i'm assuming that's through our airport has any of that been intercepted through our seaport? Yeah, that's primarily from the from the airport. I can't say for sure. Um, we don't do a whole lot of, well, I shouldn't say we do a lot of interaction. A lot of our work, we will work with CBP or with the Coast Guard. They do more of that interdiction type of work uh, at the seaport, um, and we work with them. Okay. Uh, our interdiction team is, is here um, at the airport, and so we have a couple of detectives and some some canine or some uh, drug interdiction dogs, canines that assist us with that. And I wonder how, as the governing body that oversees seaport operations, including through the NWSA and our containers, if there's any sort of coordination that happens with national or law enforcement entities um, on interdiction efforts on, on containers or, or cruise ships or otherwise. Yeah, I mean, there we we do. It's a little bit more challenging in talking with our drug interdiction team uh, for us as a local agency, uh, but we absolutely work with our federal partners um, when it comes to that sort of work. I also wanted to highlight the success story that detectives investigated an in-progress kidnapping of a one-year-old child from baggage claim. Excellent and quick investigative work led to the safe recovery and the child being reunited with the mother who was a victim of human trafficking. This is just one example of the important work that you do every day that will never see the light of day. There are so many success stories, so I did want to take the opportunity to lift that up and commend you all, and thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm uh, wondering how many officers are members of the peer support team? Do you know the answer to that? I believe, Commissioner, I believe we are at eight right now. Okay. I and believe it's eight. 
I just want to lift that up because um, that that infrastructure support um, promoting the the total health of officers so that they're in their best state of mind when they're serving all of us um, on behalf of the Port of Seattle um, is it's just so important it's paramount and then I wanted to gain clarity OPA the Office of Professional Accountability uh, is where is this housed yeah so it's, it's housed uh, right next or in the chief's office in that area and so that's where that's housed and that's uh, Sergeant April Doyle and then she reports directly to myself and to Deputy Chief uh, Thomas. And so that is a um, an office within POSPD. Yes, that's correct. So there's there's two. There's both OPA, which is within POSPD, um, and then as you know, workplace responsibility, which is in HR. Uh, we will work in tandem and with workplace responsibility when it comes to investigations and who will take which of those investigations. And so there's a lot of collaboration there. And that's for misconduct, not use of force. That would be correct. So use of force type of incidents would be reviewed um, by a uh, commander and then also um, um, OPA if there is, um, at certain points, they, they could take that if there is a suspected excessive use of force. But okay. we didn't have any of those last year. And if there was um, a homicide that involved the deadly use of force, then would that be outsourced to the Valley Independent Investigations Team? Yes, that's correct. On the Valley Independent Investigations Team, is that self-organized by the local PDs in, in order for expediency for compliance with 940? Uh, yes, it is. And so um, that's been in existence for several years. And several of the chiefs came together uh, after 940 and put together the independent investigative team. And, and just also to clarify, we are members of it. But if, if one of our officers was engaged in an officer-involved shooting, we would excuse ourselves from uh, any part of that investigation and our detectives would not respond to that it would be the other agencies detectives that would respond <laughs> right well you would that. have to um, and I think that's great because the geographical constraints to be in compliance with 940 because of how far away an incident might be from the nearest mm -hmm. responding officer is a serious issue so I commend you all on um, on that and regarding our use of force statistics and reporting I wanted to call out a couple major differences between this year as compared to last year and one of them is that the vascular neck restraint which has been proven to be um, deadly and banned in many jurisdictions is now banned here at POSPD. So thank you for, um, for implementing that as a meaningful policy measure. Um, I also noticed that this year you did not report on physical restraints. Last year that was the greatest, one of the greatest incidences of, incidents of use of force um, uh, with 11 reported in 2021. Is there a reason that that's not accounted for in the annual report. Can we still discover it in the other use of force reporting um, resources that you mentioned, like the appendices or online? Yeah, I'll have to get back to you on that because I'm not sure. Um, so I'm showing on the graph there that it's uh, zero then versus the the, the uh, counts we had previously. Physical restraints? Yeah, is that what you're looking at? I Maybe. don't see it on here okay. at all. Okay, I'll take a look at that. Okay. And then I, what I am wondering is um, if you look at 2022 use of force by service type, um, that uh, traffic violations is below zero and follow-up investigations are below zero. What does that mean? Page 27. Yeah, I would, again, have to get back to you on that specific question. Okay. Maybe. 
And um, and then the other thing that I wanted to ask about, well, I suppose this is a comment regarding the um, 21 CP recommendations and implementation. Thank you so much for that update. Um, I do understand and expect that um, an independent entity will be able to objectively evaluate compliance and implementations as those 52 recommendations. You'll be a resource. Thank you for so much for presenting um, the progress today as a snapshot. Um, I know that you'll be a resource for that independent entity, whether it's 21CP or the Office um, of Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion that will come to us in Q1 of um, 2024. Um, so what is our standard for successful implementation? And I'll tell you, uh, we should shoot for 100%, right? There are 52 recommendations, and that's what we're looking for. And progress towards all 52 is going to be important. It's not going to get covered in today's presentation. Perhaps it's something um, that we all, I'm happy to sit down with the task force. If it reconvenes, the best form is yet to be determined. But um, I do expect an independent entity to be uh, fully engaged uh, with that report. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Thank you, Commissioner Hazegawa. Commissioner Calkins. Yeah, just a uh, couple of thoughts. Um, thank you again for the uh, annual report. Um, to, to your comment about the the original um, task force that we'd set up, that, that Commissioner Steinbrook and I co-chaired. You know, that came at a very particular moment for policing in the United States, and I think in hindsight. Um, not only am I appreciative that we did collectively, the police department and the port, invest significant resources, uh, most particularly your time, time leadership at the, at the Port of Seattle Police Department, but also the, the investment in the consulting services to bring in outside perspectives. But I'm also glad that we didn't make any rash decisions at that time, mm -hmm. because I think uh, there was a, an overarching feeling in the moment that um, uh, you know there needed to be wholesale change, and it, in hindsight, what we see is that the Port of Seattle Police Department is a very different entity than most of its peer departments locally, uh, and at the same time, uh, the process resulted in some very clear direction on how we can improve, um, and we have not had a flawless record um, in that time period. There have been incidents, per, I, I would say, at an individual level, not indicative of a system-wide problem, but rather there's been incidents uh, with particular officers in, in the department since then. But for the most part, uh, the recommendations have been wholeheartedly accepted and, and now implemented by the leadership and the uh, re really the whole department, and, and so that's really encouraging for me. Um, I want to reiterate what I said at the time, which is, although this may feel, and in fact is, a greater degree of scrutiny over a single group of 110 or so employees of the Port of Seattle, uh, I still think that's merited, that you all, uh, because of the great power that, we get, that you're the only people who are allowed to employ force and potentially deadly force. And therefore, we do have to uh, put the greatest degree of scrutiny on 
you all as employees. Uh, and um, I think you have borne that responsibility and, and have accepted that additional level of scrutiny. But I don't think it makes sense for us to say, okay, job done. We can walk away from this process and say, you know, check, we've done that. But instead, incorporating this type of continued, in, in the language of our leadership here, process improvement at the police department. And the, the second thing is, I think our uh, ensuring that this is a transparent process where the public is able to access all of this information is really critical to that process too. Because there is, particularly amongst communities that historically have borne the brunt of bad policing, they need to be able to, to look behind the curtain and know that th these are real and not um, papering over um, you know, issues, but instead real implementation of, of um, measures that are understood to be best practices. Um, and then finally, I just had a specific question also about reportable force events. Uh, it seems like there's a, there's some, you know, you, you look at these charts, so I had sort of two questions. We're using leg restraints a lot more. Um, I remember when that was first discussed that uh, that was a means of um, potentially stopping a fleeing individual uh, in a way that um, prevented graver harm to the individual in particular. So maybe you could just give us a minute on, you know, are we using, the, is it that the particular incidents in 21 and 22 happen to be more of those where that's the appropriate response or are we being, are, are officers being trained to use those more to avoid using other forms of force that may incur greater harm to the individual? Sure, yeah, most of those um, in looking at the analysis that was done was when someone was handcuffed but they continued to kick and potentially could injure officers. Um, and so those were, that's where we use the leg restraints. Now I will say that um, in reviewing that, uh, one of the um, recommendations or things that we looked at is are there other devices or tools out there that where we could restrain someone, prevent them from kicking, uh, but would be a better restraint system. And so um, we did uh, do some research on um, what's called the wrap. And uh, it essentially looks kind of like a, a wheelchair but you're able to put someone in it and strap their legs down, um, still move them from point A to point B um, without necessarily using leg restraints. And so that's, a, that's something that we brought in this last year. And we're constantly doing that. We're trying to look at, you know, what are the best um, ways where we can, you know, try to, um, if we have to use force of some sort, you know, what, what, what's out there that we can utilize that's going to reduce any potential injuries to both officers and to uh, other subjects. And then last question is, you know, this table goes through obviously the end of 22. Is there anything in 2023 numbers right now that is a real outlier that you think, boy, we're about three quarters of the way through the year and the numbers are spiking in some particular area or um, just anything you want to highlight? Yeah, I haven't, I haven't looked at exactly where we're at as far as the numbers go. Um, I do get briefed on uses of force and there hasn't been anything this year that um, comes to mind right now where it's, it's it's been an outlier or something that we've had to, that's been of any concern um, to me. Now, certainly we don't want to use force if we don't need to. You know, most of our uses of force um, over the last, historically have been uh, physically taking someone to the ground um, that maybe be intoxicated or resisting or something like that. So um, most of our not significant uses of force 
anything that was, I, I would be briefed up on. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much. Um, I want to thank you uh, and your team for all the work that you do. Uh, obviously, it's not easy being in law enforcement, but uh, I also know that it's unique being here at the Port of Seattle in law enforcement. And so I'm going to ask you a question that hopefully is a layup. Uh, but, you know, we just spent this morning with the firefighters. Uh, I know you were there, Chief Via, and we were able to celebrate their new facility. And, and I talked a little bit about how firefighters at the Port of Seattle are unique and special and a cut, of, a cut above the rest because of the unique nature of airports. Uh, and so I guess the question for you is when you recruit, when your team recruits and talks about the Port of Seattle Police Department, like what's your pitch in terms of why they should choose the Port of Seattle D PD over a SPD or a Tequila PD or, or any other PD? Um, uh, I'm not calling out anyone in particular, but you know, I, I do think that we're special and I thought I'd give you an opportunity to put on the record why the Port of Seattle Police Department is unique and special. Yeah, no, thanks for that opportunity. So actually, um, the recruitment team uh, produced recruitment cards. So I carry those in my wallet. So <laughs> when I'm traveling and I'm going other places, I'll hand those out. Um, or if I come across Seattle officers or someone that, you know, I think might be a good officer, I'll hand those out. So, so I do have some of those conversations. I, I mean, there are several things, and, I, and I'm going to try to be concise. Um, but, uh, you know, one thing is just the, is the great people we have here and the professionals that we have here at the department it's a great department to work for and and i can honestly look at another officer from another agency and i can i can say it's a it is a great place to work one of the reasons why i love working at the port is because i love working with the people um, that i'm working with with the command staff the supervisory staff and the other people in the agency now aside from that or on top of that there's opportunities we have here that other agencies don't have you know it used to be the number used to be about 66 percent. i think it's pretty close 60% of our staff have some specialty of, of some kind beyond the, the normal job that they're doing. So that might be that they're a bomb detection or bomb disposal unit member. Uh, we have 14 explosive detection canines. Uh, our officers at work patrol can, can get trained up and ride uh, bicycles. Um, we have a dive team. We have a, a marine patrol unit. And, and along with that and other specialties that we have are just the opportunities to do other things that officers don't have opportunities. I, we just, in the last, uh, since July, maybe I mentioned this earlier, I don't remember, we hired nine officers that came into the force. And two of those, I want to say two, were sergeants of other departments. Long-time career, uh, supervisors. We've hired, I want to say three in the last year. Anyway, at least two, two or three. Okay. But they're sergeants for their departments, others who are detectives in other departments. And I asked them, why did you come here? Because you had a really good job. You know, you're going to be working graveyard and nights and, and uh, swing and holidays because you're going, going back to patrol. Yes, but the opportunities here, I'm, I'm ready to move on to something different is a lot of times what I get. And so it's just it's a great department to work for as far as the different opportunities and enables, other, enables officers um, to come in and, and experience other things and just have a great time working here. Excellent. Thank you so much for that. I want to note for the record that although Commissioner Feldman did recuse himself from a previous item, he did join us virtually at around 1.05 p.m. and he continues to be with us today. I'm hearing that he actually wants to make a comment on this um, uh, item and so I'll go ahead and recognize Commissioner Feldman for closing comments on this item. Thank you, President Cho, and I just couldn't let uh the uh, the chief make his 
great presentation without expressing my appreciation for you and your team and the transparency with which you do your work. So without elaborating further, thank you for all you do, and I've had the pleasure of monitoring this whole meeting remotely. So thanks again. Thank you, Commissioner Feldman. All right, thank you, Chief. Thank you, team. Appreciate you guys coming out and for giving us this presentation. And if I could just also yeah. just, um, just say I really appreciate the support from the commission, um, Executive Director Metric, uh, the Deputy Executive Director, uh, Karen uh, Goon, who recently started, and really just the executive um, team has it's been, uh, like I mentioned before, I was appointed chief last year in August, so I've just gotten over a year of being the chief, and it's been tremendous, and it really, uh, it really provides the support that I think the officers and our staff needed at this time over this last year mm -hmm. and so i just really appreciate uh, the support that you all have provided so thank you Excellent. and thank you chief for your service for stepping up and uh for making at least i'll speak for myself feel like we made the right choice so appreciate you all right that concludes our business meeting agenda for the day are there any closing comments at this time or motions relating to community referrals from commissioners commissioner azagawa Thank you, Mr. President. I just wanted to state for the record that I um, wholly embrace and re reaffirm my commitment to our raised values as a port. Um, I, you know, believe in um, in the good work that everyone is doing um, as a part of the Port of Seattle institution, um, and really, really, um, am grateful for the opportunity afforded to me by the people of King County to be a part of that. And so. Um, uh, that's it. And happy Latino Heritage Month. Thank you, Commissioner Hazagawa. Anyone else? All right. Executive Director Metric, any uh, closing comments from you today? Uh, nothing else today. Thanks, Commissioners, for your, uh, especially your feedback on the, uh, everything, but especially your um, feedback on the budget. We always, yep. we always, we always go back and forth. How much information is too much, and and we're trying to strike that balance. So I appreciate your feedback on how we can be more effective in the presentation of that. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Hearing no further comments and having no further business, if there is no objection, we are adjourned at 3.31 p.m. Thank you all.